at long last the playoffs have become a reality and after the utter anti-climax of the last two weeks of the season they start with a bang three of the four road teams won on saturday and we're going to go in chronological order here start with the game of the day saturday brooklyn at philly and it was unclear what the severity of joel Embiid's knee injury was elton brand said he was optimistic that he could play then Embiid was officially listed as doubtful his presser on friday he said he generally didn't know if he's going to play spotted before the game wearing a knee brace which he then ditched because he said it didn't feel comfortable and he did play but to no avail as the Sixers were trounced pretty much throughout by the Nets. The tenor of the game changed pretty quickly. You had this early stretch where I think it was in the first minute of the game Embiid got Jared Allen twice for fouls and they uh, Atkinson ended up keeping Jared Allen in basically for his regular minutes at that point and the Sixers got into the bonus early and they were getting some rhythm but basically as soon as that little run subsided it was overwhelmingly nets now some of that was Philly missing every single three-pointer imaginable especially I think they were something like 0 for 9 in the first quarter but also there were some bigger structural problems and I think that's the reason why to me of the three home teams that lost on Saturday that's the reason along with Embiid's injury why the Sixers should be the most concerned yeah Embiid's injury number one obviously is very very concerning and i thought it was very clear number one his conditioning clearly was not there his movement was not there he admitted after the game that he was taking more jumpers because he didn't feel comfortable and the sixers did you know they have some good three-point shooters but jj reddick only took four of those 25 three-point shots mike scott he'll go better than one for eight but Embiid. i mean the, the two guys that you really need to stop from shooting threes are tobias harris and jj reddick and those guys combined for only six three-pointers the nets did an excellent job taking away the three i thought and while the sixers were excellent on the offensive glass and that kept them in it for a time towards the end of the first half it really seemed like all of the weaknesses for the sixers and all of the strengths for the nets that we talked about as to why this series could be more of a mismatch than it seemed on paper well actually that's not true because the Sixers only had like a 2.5 net rating but uh, during the season but why it seemed like less of a mismatch than the star talent for the Sixers would indicate uh, that all came home to roost they, they really had all of those same weaknesses that we talked about for large portions of the game I think one of the most notable things to me and this was actually more true outside of the starting fives which isn't a surprise when you consider the disparity between the Sixers five best players being together and then the Nets having a lot of good players off their bench and there are a lot of things to talk about there was the quality of shots that these teams were getting it wasn't just that you know Philadelphia shooting three for 25 from three that, that that's a rough number and and even if they were all hard shots you would expect that to to normalize but generally speaking for me I was very impressed at the quality of shots that that Brooklyn was getting they got to the line 26 times themselves D'Angelo Russell deserves praise for attacking the basket more aggressively than he has most of this year did a nice job getting in the paint that also opened up some passing lanes and then also they got a lot from the bench guards that that seems to understate how good they are but Spencer Dinwiddie and Karis LeVert both of whom were aggressive attacking were finding seams were whether they were finishing at the basket for themselves getting getting pull-up looks all sorts of things but those two guys looked great as well yeah that's 
plays into one of the weaknesses that we saw from philly spencer dinwiddie one of the best in the nba on a point per possession basis of attacking mismatches when guys other than his matchup or matchup against him particularly centers he blew by mike scott repeatedly anytime he had jj reddick well that was karis levert's chance to abuse him and get to the rim for good shots uh jonah bolden who they tried to go with for a little bit in the second half he got blown by so even tobias harris was not particularly good defending so it's really if it's not ben simmons and it's not jimmy butler those two Nets guards are going to be able to get to the basket and then there's shooting around them at all times. And I thought another thing that was key for Atkinson in this game, probably the biggest strategic thing that we can point to was Atkinson going with Jared Dudley at center for large swaths of the game instead of Rondé Hollis Jefferson. And he first went to it with Boban in the game and then even uh, with Embiid later on as well. And we had posited, hey, none of these guys can stop Embiid anyway. Why don't you go a little smaller? You just double team in the post if you have to. And then you spread him out on the other end. And I thought Dudley was excellent defensively. He, he used his girth expertly in the post at times uh, against Ben Simmons and even Embiid a couple of times worked hard he didn't shoot it particularly well but he was just there as a help presence and the plus minus plus 16 in this game he he was awesome there he also got some good minutes alongside ed davis who was plus 28 and uh, overcame a, what looked like a pretty nasty sprained ankle in the third quarter and philly really got back in touch very briefly in the third but then lost control of the rope again what else stood out to you here today i said during the nba cast that i wanted to look this up and i did about philly's first shot offense because they did so much of their damage on second chance points and then also at the free throw line and in the game philadelphia was 28 of 75 on the first shot of a possession and remember that if you get fouled shooting a shot and the shot doesn't go in that that doesn't even count against you and if it does go in then it does so that's 37 percent from the field i didn't split it into threes and twos because that's I, I didn't have the capacity to do that but that's some of that is brooklyn doing a really good job defensively contesting shots i thought in particular with reddick that was the most striking i mean so reddick he only attempted seven shots in the game but i would say about three of those seven were normal jj reddick good looks and the other ones were a little bit rushed maybe there was a guy coming from coming from the side his feet weren't quite quite there and so not only was he battling foul trouble a lot of this game but he was battling just tough shots and good and good defense and that was something i brought up you know in the pregame when we were talking about it i didn't think brooklyn had the horses i didn't think they had the right guys to go after reddick to make life hard on him and they passed with flying colors at least in one game yeah i thought dinwiddie did a really nice job defensively i thought lavert was pretty good on d as well and russell is not a great defender but they didn't really take advantage of him in this game you didn't see just massive errors or guys going straight through russell uh who by the way despite having in theory a good game had 26 points on 27 shooting possessions and and four turnovers and four assists so actually and was negative 10 in their nine point win now part of that is the nets starting lineup is not even close to some of their best guys like kurux didn't do hardly anything jared allen only played 10 minutes and, and put four fouls in there and they really only have with that starting group 
one guy who can dribble <laughs> essentially and, and that's russell so you know there is a lot of pressure on him to produce with those groups and i don't put it all on him that he was negative 10 but so you might say hey maybe quirk should just play a little bit less you know they can get more out of some of their bench guys but i think 13 minutes for him you know, dudley 28 minutes is probably the most you're going to get out of him so it's one of those things where we talked hey maybe they should change up their starting lineup because they got killed in, in both halves but they made all that back by going to those bench heavy units right as philly is starting to go to some of their more limited guys like mcconnell simmons who was good defensively in this game but was negative 16 and 11 minutes uh and he had a huge mistake where he just took a three with 12 seconds left in the first quarter when they could have run the clock down and then the nets hit a three on the other end as part of a 12-0 run that was kind of the decisive point of the game that 12-0 run so i i think Russell didn't have a great statistical game but a a lot of that is the results of that starting unit that he was playing with and he looked better when he had some of their more talented groups allowing him he didn't have to create every single shot there it was a good exercise in team building about and this is a lesson for me to to Dallas with Luca and various other teams around the league is that you really want to have a second ball handler for a couple different reasons and one of the biggest ones is not so much just for variation but because it gives teams with bad defenders fewer places to hide them and this came up with JJ Redick when they had Redick out there and Levert and Dinwiddie were both there you have those two guys on the floor and you don't want to put JJ Redick on either one of them Dinwiddie just went through Redick a couple of times like he was tissue paper and then they started trying to avoid that whenever possible but they couldn't really do that with Levert because Levert can handle over can attack just the same way and then if you're trying to get reddick on like a three or like a fourth and that brings other challenges as well or they can just use them in the screening action which is something they did with travion graham a couple times and so you just open up so many more avenues and if another team has a really good individual defender then you don't have to rely on that solitary creator and i thought that was part of why d'angelo russell had some struggles in this game i thought and i still think he will have some very you know some very good efficient games in this series because of MB being a drop back big but Philly one of the things that they deserve praise for in this game was especially early on using Ben Simmons and then at other points Jimmy Butler they were fighting through screens they were basically doing what you need to do to still get after a pull-up shooter without having your center hedge too hard yeah yeah they're able to have guys that hang back a little bit and and philly three out of 25 on threes that's going to improve and the nets were eight out of 13 in the first half philly can feel good about holding brooklyn to only 26 three-point attempts getting 25 themselves is not great this game to me even with joel Embiid only playing 24 minutes and reddick only playing 23 minutes encapsulated exactly why i didn't see much reason for them to trade for tobias harris who had four points on two of seven in 41 minutes he's just he's never the guy that you go to in the main action all the time he was kind of like a 22 percent usage backside type of guy and they're putting the ball in the hands of butler who is fantastic or it's going to be Embiid, and harris is largely a spot-up shooter his additional ball skills are really underutilized on this team he's much better on a team like the clippers or the pistons where they're sharing the ball a lot more there isn't really one guy that they're initiating the action through all the time and you've got a bunch of guys like gallo and you know there's the pre pre blake griffin pistons uh, you know reggie jackson and, and harris and like where you're he's just a part of things they're moving the ball out and the sixers 
purports to move the ball a lot but yet they just are not able to get uh, Tobias Harris good looks the other problem too is he's just not going to get the open three-pointers because so often he's one of those two guys that you're not going to leave so you're just not going to leave him you can get help from other areas when you're in more of an egalitarian system with more guys you can shoot then he's going to have times where you can't just oh we're just going to stick to Tobias and never leave him because there's other guys that you have to help off of uh, as well uh or or you have to help off of him every now and again um and it tied in with something else i mean you brought up that jimmy butler had had a great game and we should go through it a little bit more 36 points 11 of 22 from the field almost all of that from two-point range also got to the line for 15 free throws which is almost as many as joel Embiid. Embiid had 18 a lot of that early and butler also had some strong defensive possessions he was there were times where like as there was a stretch i think that was in the third quarter where Brooklyn was going small and so Butler just attacked the basket every single time and I think there were three straight trips where he got either a basket or free throws and Tobias Harris can be a more efficient player than Jimmy Butler Tobias Harris is a very good basketball player in his own right you don't need to just because one guy is better than another guy does not make the one guy a scrub but Jimmy Butler when he's when he's after it and with all the other stuff he's just a force in a way that Tobias Harris just generally is not and for certain teams maybe that's a better fit but I mean this was a reminder of just what Jimmy Butler can be yeah absolutely especially against a team like the Nets that doesn't really have a great matchup for him a lot of the time you know if if he's going against a Toronto or a Golden State or something like that the guys when there are guys on the wing who can match him physically then I I think that changes a little bit but uh, Brooklyn doesn't have any one like that but i think for philly it's just it's gonna be tough i mean 32 minutes from mike scott is is tough tj mcconnell just didn't have the size to deal with russell and pick and roll when he would get screened off he wasn't able to do that rear view contest so many possessions although interestingly enough mcconnell was plus 12 but still many possessions went to die when he was just standing in the corner and not being guarded or he's in the dunker role but he can't dunk that's never a good side with someone who can't dunk is standing in the dunker spot um let's see what else i i got here well something else that i think is concerning yeah. for philly is that boban had had a better game than i would anticipate you know he, he they were conceding a bunch of free throw line jumpers not much jump but he can make those shots consistently and mcconnell i think had a better night overall you talked about and i agree with you that there are these residual effects that can't be quantified in the box score but overall i would say mcconnell had a better game than i would anticipate and i mean the quiet tournament due to happenstance and injury and everything else jonathan simmons is is getting those minutes right now he was not good in this game defensively not at the level that we kind of hoped after he had some nice playoffs with the spurs offensively just a clear negative uh, not as devastating I, as he I was, thought he was actually fine defensively in this game he was fine but i mean he wasn't as good as he like i, I thought he'd be more of a positive than fine personally yeah. And, um, and when you're negative on offense, you kind of have to be. And Jonah Bolden, I, I thought he wasn't going to play at all because he didn't play at all in the first half. He got a few minutes, was, you know, was, was all right. You know, yeah, we, the game was largely over by then. But right. still, I mean, the reason you play him is because you hope that you can switch defensively. And he got, the one time he got switched down to, he got completely blown by. Uh, what do you see for adjustments going forward uh, on both sides here? You brought this up, and I think it was a good point on the NBA cast, that Philadelphia doesn't really have a lot of counters because they have players with specific weaknesses and they really have 
five strong players on their team and then their bench guys are all flawed and you can't so they can't really tweak their lineups too much I guess maybe you could change some of the configurations but I think the biggest thing that Philly has to do is press their advantages and that starts with Joel Embiid posting up he when he takes a jump shot especially if Jared Allen's on the floor and Allen was in foul trouble for basically the entirety of this game after the first minute you're creating some sort of an advantage even though Philly doesn't have the shooting and you can help off of different guys and they didn't really try that at all. And not only is Joel Embiid a talented post-up guy who forces reactions and creates seams, but Ben Simmons who was a largely a non-entity offensively. Oh, yeah, and we often, haven't even mentioned Yeah, him yet, often right? a non-entity on defense as well. He had a couple of highlight plays on defense, but most of the time he wasn't really wasn't really around that much. And so Simmons can post guys up. Jimmy Butler at moments can do that as well. And Boban, of course, of course can. And he had one amazing seal, kind of not even a full seal on Damari Carroll, but it didn't matter because Boban is just so much bigger. But they need to go after that. They need to create make hay while the sun is shining. And part of the playoffs, we've talked before about the severity of weaknesses, but also it's knowing when you have an advantage. And yeah, maybe you're not going to get two points per shot on post-ups, but maybe they leave another, they leave a guy and a cutter can get open to the basket. Embiid had a couple of nice passes. He had one to, to Simmons. He was kind of looked like he was driving for a post-up or sorry, for a hook shot. And they just found Simmons on the opposite side because Embiid drew the extra guy. Those sorts of plays are going to be there because you can't stop everything and that's a hard thing to stop simmons in particular other than a few offensive rebounds you just didn't and a few plays where he got over screens defensively and was able to bother russell you didn't feel him physically and that's where the sixers and they're limited with this a little bit with impedes injury and conditioning but the sixers just need to overwhelm this nets team physically and jimmy butler simmons and bead those guys have massive advantages at their position in terms of size and strength and butler he did but Embiid, he's got to just, I mean, I guess he was trying to protect his knee. I don't know. He eventually finally got deep post position a couple of times in the second half, and good things happened for Philly. If the, if he's going to be shooting a bunch of threes, he was 0 for 5, he's 30% on the year. And when you have a bad knee, you're not going to shoot it very well from three. Your motion isn't going to be consistent, especially if you feel some pain as every time you bend down your knee uh, to uh, try and rise up for <clears throat> a shot I and mean, simmons quick duckins can really help now of course when you have to play john simmons and you have to play tj and you have to play boban and nobody's hitting a three those actions become much more difficult but the other thing to transition four fast break points for philly just not even close to good enough simmons usually is going to push it there he only had three assists nine points negative 21 three turnovers you know, that's really ugly as well uh 32 minutes for him is not great he had four fouls so that's number one i think um number two no switching ever with jj reddick and i think they figured that out about two-thirds of the way through this game if you want to put jj reddick on jared dudley or damari carroll or kuroks or something if those guys come and set the screen for Dinwiddie or Levert or Russell, you just have Reddick hedge and get back to his man. And if those guys want to shoot a pick and pop three or try to get ahead of steam to the rim themselves, fine. So you just deal with it. You can't get Reddick switched on to these guys, especially because he'll get in foul trouble. Just better, better plan for Reddick too defensively. I mean, he just he's got to keep his hands off these guys. Like he's he's a a vet. He's just every time he well, was, and, and, and that's something. 
something warm on these guys and getting a foul call. And it's something that I think needs to be emphasized at various levels of coaching is that especially if you're not a good defender, you're not creating as much value by being handsy. Like this isn't Andre Guadala or Kawhi Leonard putting his hand into the passing lane or into a guy where, yeah, he might get a steal. Reddick's not getting anything from that. Yeah, so that's another one. In terms of personnel for the Sixers, you know, I'm not really sure what the answers are, to be honest. Maybe you try Bolden a little bit more. Maybe you go with more switching, especially when Dinwiddie is out of the game. Uh, But generally, Dinwiddie or or Levert are going to be in at any time when the Sixers are going with a bench unit. I think that matchup worked really well uh, for Kenny Atkinson. Um, You know, certainly more stuff to get Harris involved. Maybe uh, some little ISO post-ups for him as well uh, against smaller defenders uh, is a possibility. I think trying to go after D'Angelo Russell a little little bit more defensively is something that they could look at doing too. Uh, whether that's involving him in screening action, whether that's trying to get him onto JJ Redick so he could come off of screens, but the Nets do a lot of switching. They they're somewhat difficult to exploit in that way, and so I, I think you got to really just try to figure out a way to continue to overpower, and especially someone like Simmons. Just hey, if he brings the ball up, have him push the ball, and then go into that kind of transition back to goal post up like Russell Westbrook does. Um, but again, that's easier said than done when you're not hitting any threes and you have you're playing a lot of these non shooters. So it's uh it's tough. Uh, I do think they did a decent job protecting the rim when the Nets had a traditional center out there, but then they were able to go small and uh kind of get those guys off the floors. They still got to keep hitting the offensive glass really hard. But again, it's not like they just don't have other guys, other lineups, other combinations that you can go to. It's just uh, a lot of their main guys have to play better i mean if if you're not getting dominant games out of Embiid and simmons and harris then they're totally stunned because their bench sure as hell i mean they probably got better play out of their bench than they could hope for to, to get going forward here right yeah anything else for the Sixers or or you got anything on the Nets either well the only other thing I want to say is it's the benefit of having 10 to 12 guys who can play functional minutes in an NBA game you know like that that Brooklyn they didn't even use everybody they had at their disposal whereas Philly's just grasping at every single like even a shitty straw they're grabbing at that to see if if it'll work yeah for the Nets I think they probably stick with that same starting lineup even if it is potentially going to get worked hopefully Ed Davis can play I mean that looked like one of those ankle injuries that could maybe swell up on him and be a problem when do these guys play next they play Monday so not a long turnaround yeah so that, that could be trouble for Davis and they really don't have they only have two traditional bigs even on the roster in Allen and Davis and so we'll probably see some Rondé Hollis Jefferson maybe at that point and he'll at least unlock a little bit more versatility but he can't shoot it all you can't replay him with another big they tried that early in the season and they just couldn't really score in those units uh you know you might I, I think they could when Russell's on the floor they might think of trying to get him into the post a little bit more especially if McConnell is out there or Reddick is out there that's something that that they could try and do um they only had seven fast break points themselves but uh 
and the zone is interesting i think philly spent a lot of time preparing for the zone we only saw the nets go to it after their own free throws and philly was ready for it they ran a nice set where mb got an and one when they screened the center in the zone which is uh you know setting screens of specific players in the zone and preventing help can work a lot i think set plays against the zone is teams that things that teams should use more and brett brown was ready with that uh but you know i, I think this is a series that I'm not sure we're going to see a lot of strategic adjustments just because neither coach has the personnel to change the way that they're playing in particular. So, and I think they did a nice job on Reddick. There's maybe more stuff that the Sixers can try to do to get him involved. And as far as getting out in transition i think that's really a big thing for the sixers that's where you can sow some chaos get some stuff for reddick try to get simmons ben simmons to the basket uh really push the ball they should be able to rebound especially because the nets are going to get to the rim but they've got him beat and they've got boba on there like the nets are going to miss shots at the rim in particular on those plays when a guy misses the layup and is flying into the cameras that's where you can push it afterward all right i think that's it for this game but if you don't watch that game on monday with Joel Embiid hopefully he can play he changed his nickname from the process to Joel Hulu has live sports Embiid Damian Lillard gonna play tomorrow you could actually get well tomorrow as we record this I guess it won't actually air until Sunday but you can watch game two in that series uh on Hulu with live sports Damian Lillard uh, has a tattoo that says Hulu has live sports all of us want you to know that Hulu has live sports they also have awesome original shows as well my wife and i currently are watching pen 15 which is one of the funniest shows that i've ever seen she loves a great show to watch with your significant other with hulu you can get over 60 live and on-demand channels on their live tv plan tons of shows and movies and their exclusive originals like the pen 15 that i mentioned get rid of cable make the switch only 45 dollars a month that is clearly less expensive than cable or satellite watch your favorite teams and the biggest games all season no cable required you can watch it on the go too on all your favorite devices hulu is a great app for that way better than the cable company apps for trying to watch remotely of course the live tv plan is required and restrictions apply learn more at hulu.com okay in the sky is falling part two we shall turn to toronto and orlando it was a 104-101 win for the Magic. DJ Augustin hitting a huge three-pointer with under three seconds remaining to win the game for the Magic. The Magic, 14 of 29 from downtown. The Raptors, a mere two of seven from the free throw line in the second half and 12 out of 36 from downtown for the game. So not as bad as the Nuggets and Sixers were, the other losers uh, from three. Uh, What were your initial thoughts on this one? In 2019, so since the year year turned over, the Orlando Magic were third in the NBA in defensive rating using cleaning the glasses filter. And I think they were something like eighth in net rating, seventh, seventh in net rating. And I wondered, you know, they've, they've, played much better we've talked about it on 15 to 60s and various points in time and you're facing a a talented team facing at at their home and you know they're a deep squad though really functionally nick nurse only played eight guys in this game and we had seen previously during this year 
that Jonathan Isaac had defended Pascal Siakam well. And Siakam ended up with 24 points on 24 shots. He didn't get to the free throw line at all. So it wasn't like Siakam was was awful. Yeah, well, and he was taking, in the half court, he was taking very difficult shots yes. and holding the ball for a long time. That's exactly what I was getting to, is, is that. And then the one that surprised me a little bit more, again, not a perfect performance because Kawhi still had it, but I thought that Aaron Gordon made life harder on Kawhi Leonard than I expected. And so not every, you know, they're not, they're not going to necessarily have a 102, 103 offensive. And by this, I mean the Raptors, they're not going to have 102, 103 offensive rating every time out there. But some of the fundamentals that I hoped and expected would be solid for the Magic defensively absolutely work. Yeah, and this is not a Raptors offense. I mean, they had a good offense, not a great offense this season, but they didn't have those moments where they're out there just looking absolutely unstoppable. They're not paying the ball around, getting wide open threes, getting all sorts of dunks. You feel like, oh, we can't stop them. Now, they have some really efficient guys. Kawhi, he'll work two his spots, and he had a really nice game with 25 points, 10 of 18 from the field, but they kept him off the foul, and they kept the whole Raptors team off the foul, like only 14 attempts. I thought that was key. You mentioned them not following Siakam as well. He played 42 minutes, but 12 of 24 from the field and and that's not all that efficient uh, for him Kyle Lowry we'll talk more about him uh, in a moment he had a, a pretty rough go and yeah I thought this magic defensive team they don't really they have the athletes on the wing but with Augustin and Vucevic you wouldn't think that's a great defensive combination at the point of attack on pick and rolls but the Raptors this isn't the same Kyle Lowry who used to run pick and roll all the time and was a huge threat you know I mean he was 0 for 7 tonight and uh oh for six on three so he's he doesn't have the ability to get downhill and attack someone like Vucevic and Leonard's a, a little bit too slow so Siakam is not really that kind of a ball handler so they aren't able to attack the biggest magic weakness defensively and I think the magic will be able to defend the Raptors reasonably well in this series where I thought the magic had no chance was on the other end and that 14 to 29 three-point shooting a lot of that is shall we say unsustainable right like Michael Carter Williams two out of three Wundu was one one out of two it wasn't even Ross who went off in this one Augustine was unbelievable 25 points in 30 minutes did it on 15 shooting possessions just an absolutely outstanding work for him six well, and assists. not only that he only turned the ball over once yeah which is huge as well i mean the magic actually turned the ball over fewer times than the raptors in this game they they took more free throws and took more shots from the field because they also had more offensive rebounds so i, I tweeted after the game toronto is going to be fine and I, I think that's the case i think they'll play better offensively and the magic aren't going to shoot 48 percent from three for the series most likely their defense on twos was outstanding the magic shot only 36 percent on twos and they were not getting good looks throughout a lot of this vucevic was completely shut down by mark gasol in the post he had no chance to get good looks in the post did go one out of three had hit a huge three late and i think probably stationing him away from the basket may be a, a way to have more of an effect they did have success was something that Zach Lowe talked about on his show which is the wide pin down action of Vucevic for Fournier coming out of the left corner where Fournier can come off a screen and hit that three a lot of times 
they were getting a, a late switch where Gasol had to step out on Fournier that left Vucevic with and a lot of times it was Lowry uh, guarding Fournier in the corner as well that left Vucevic guarded by Lowry which is a mismatch in the post they got a huge corner three from John Isaac late in the last three minutes off of that action where they had the mismatch in the post and Vucevic did a nice job of swinging it around so that was the one thing that it looked like they struggled with a little bit uh and obviously the Magic are going to go back to that and then the pick and roll with Augustine I mean Augustine also had a number of Houdini finishes at the rim uh I'm not sh- I think getting a little more length on him could help but you know Danny Green Kweiler those are pretty good defenders and Vucevic sets good screens those are two good players but I I do think the Raptors will be able to control them in the future so I I, like the Raps defense was fine it was just a lot of shooters I mean those two Carter Williams threes they're basically just like turning their back on the guy and letting him shoot threes and and Carter Williams was good in this game by the way I thought yeah he was good and it was also I mean especially considering how close this game got at the end a very important sequence and decision for the refs that Carter Williams got hit in the face by Kyle Lowry a call all that is from from my vantage point is very easy to see on replay but you can sometimes miss in live action especially because it was in the middle of the play it wasn't like on an edge where, where a ref had a good line of sight on it and carter williams got bashed in the nose it was bleeding and they missed the call i mean i i'm not i'm not i think it's it's one that can be missed the nba is very very hard to officiate and he is very frustrated justifiably so and basically runs over to the refs and starts yelling at them and there are justifiable opinions on this sort of an issue where there i i am completely sympathetic to the people who say you can't react the way that he did to a referee like you have to give attack you have to do something there just because you have to do that but at the same well well, he did at least get intercepted by his teammates before he he really got in his face yeah i I think that's what saved him it i think that is what saved him but also there are these circumstances and it's a little bit more obvious uh, because obviously he didn't start bleeding the second he got hit it takes a second for that to build up and when one of the things that's so frustrating for me and that happens is when things when there are much more extreme consequences that derive from a player being being the victim of an incorrect call and you know yeah it gets exacerbated and i mean i've written this about draymond before and like sometimes they get too carried away in the moment but i i thought that part of the reason why was i think the refs it was pretty it was pretty clear they missed the call because the guy's bleeding out of his face but that they didn't give him a technical i mean think about how different this game was even if one point swings i mean that's with some of the threes and some of the big shots that happened during the course of this game that would have made a difference yeah, absolutely. I thought it was good to not compound the missed call by also teeing up, teeing the guy up. And it doesn't look good when a guy's got blood all over his face to uh, also tee him up. <laughs> so that was a good decision not to do that. Other than that, though, I thought it was a very inconsistently refereed fourth quarter, particularly like Carter Williams got a completely ridiculous charge call where he wasn't in front of him. Kawhi just goes into his normal shooting motion. Carter Williams falls back and somehow it gets the charge. There are a lot of really questionable plays on guys going to the basket where there didn't seem to be a lot of contact where they still got calls um a couple other notes they went with Gasol and Ibaka together probably for about five six minutes of this game and I think that's okay when you've got a Wundu on the floor they hit Ibaka on a Wundu a Wundu did hit a three but he, he's not a huge shooting threat so I think you, you're fine there and you should with Gasol and Ibaka both pretty good shooters those guys that incidentally have played together before on the Spanish national team uh, uh as Ibaka is a naturalized citizen there uh I thought that a 
key moment of the game the magic actually went up 16 57 41 and the reps went on a 9-0 run right at the end of the first half and then they made it almost 20 to 0 or 20 to 2 something like that and took the lead and you thought oh man this is it and the magic responded their defense started shutting down the raptors and yeah they got outscored 27 to 18 in the third quarter but they were able to keep the game from completely getting away from them with their defense and keeping it tied because i think the the raptors actually took about a five-point lead midway through the third and the magic really just clawed back with some of those timely threes from carter williams it wouldn't do uh the magic bench really won this game for them uh, i thought terrence ross was plus 13 kem birch was solid and when you Clifford has been an absolute warlock all year. Once he got Jerry and Grant and Mo Bamba out of the rotation, and Awundu, Birch, Carter Williams, Ross, like those guys on the floor against what's supposed to be a deep Raptors team, guys like Van Vliet, Ibaka, Norm Powell, and then some of those starters being left in the game for the Raptors. Like the Raptors are supposed to be winning those minutes. Like those, they have the more talented bench, and yet they were not able to do so uh we should probably talk yeah. about kyle lowry yeah i mean I, I i did a little bit i mean he was just he was missing open threes yeah just, and, a, and a lot of them were catch and shoot threes as well like yeah. it wasn't it wasn't just him you know get, getting getting a seam and getting yeah. a pull up there and those are generally the shots that the raptors want him taking he wasn't i don't think he was overly aggressive in terms of shooting and he was creating i mean zero points is obviously ghastly but he he was creating like as as a passer and they were getting looks they were getting looks off of that and so like this wasn't to be clear this wasn't a good game for him but the zero points does it it, it does overstate it just like i think the plus 11 overstates it the other way and yeah they need they need more from lowry and especially if i mean augustine had a wonderful game those two guys i think they'll they'll each go closer to their means moving forward but something else that that i was really impressed with in this game from orlando they were up three with i think it was a little bit over a minute left Kawhi hits a three over john isaac then yeah. they get tough a stop step back tough step I mean, back was, to his left they're, they're down three at that point it's semi-transition i mean that's and, and i was thinking at that time and then in the next shot that Kawhi hit like oh this is the guy that they've been missing in these close playoff games right yeah and so you, you get the whole new raptors thing and he Kawhi. so they get a stop Kawhi makes the two so they're up two points with about 45 seconds left i think it was something like that and what i thought toronto was the better team it, it i i was starting to build the kind of the narrative in my head of like you know orlando got all these threes to go michael carter williams was was found money he had had the really nice stretch and then he went out because he got his nose bashed in and toronto took that punch they you know they just like they did on that 15-0 run at towards the the end of the second quarter came back got it and and they're fine and then i don't think toronto scored the rest of the game um yeah the, the last bucket they had was that uh, Kawhi. i mean they, they went two scoreless possessions at the end um and in the magic are down to augustine 44.9 left an incredible driving shot over two guys off the pick and roll and but the process was good there for toronto other than the timing 
they went to the 3-1 pick and roll they were getting great looks off of that with uh Kawhi going at Augustin he gets into the lane Marcus O wide open left corner three just barely spins out but the problem was uh, Nick Nurse had two timeouts after that Augustin shot to tie it with 45 seconds left I think you take the timeout there generally I think you can score better without a timeout but they had to make sure that they got the two for one and the Raptors just kind of screwed around I mean they were going to run a simple 3-1 pick and roll but they just waited too long to get into it and that Gasol jumper didn't have happen until there's 28 seconds on the clock and i mean it wasn't like oh they tried to get into it and then they had to pass it around there's basically just one action Kawhi gets uh, into the lane and then they swing it to gasol so if they just start earlier they get the two for one and then instead they come back down clifford in his own right does not take the time out and it was just a massive mental error they run the time down about three seconds left go for the high pick and roll with augustin and vooch and marcus and leonard miscommunicate leonard thought it was going to be a switch gasol took too late to get out there and augustin just banged a three but it was clear i mean as you saw as soon as gasol he steps up there and then takes a step back and i think that was i would say it's probably on him i mean in that situation with that amount of time left i mean there was probably two seconds left on the shot clock when the screen took place yeah i mean it would have been hard to even get the ball to vooch if 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 marcus was on him right and and, i mean i think you at the very least you have to wait until Kawhi has gotten through that screen and is in position contest on Kawhi, he just went with vooch he thought it was just a straight switch i mean marcus is not a what known as a switch defender uh and so he backed up thinking that leonard was going to just try and get through the screen he didn't and august i mean you should never get that open of a shot in that situation uh just a simple pick and roll with the that kind of a miscommunication i mean that's that's real tough and maybe it was too loud for them to hear but i mean you got to have a plan in that situation late in the game uh adjustments for the next game it's interesting i mean because i think from toronto's perspective i i I think some of it is just going to be the shots that they got going in a little bit more. I thought Van Vliet played well off the bench. He he was, he was solid out there. He did end up negative sixteen, but I but I mean I thought he you know he looked he was getting some decent shots. Was able to pull that off. And I as I said, like I mean I thought that even though. Kawhi was 10 of 18 from the field had a strong night Aaron Gordon I thought just he made him work for it and sometimes against a guy like Kawhi who can just move guys out of the way that's about all you can ask for yeah I thought he did a good job of not just getting physically dominated the the way Kawhi does with a lot of guys I think both Siakam and Leonard I'd like to see more of that 3-1-4-1 pick and roll other than just very late in the game that's a good way to get Lowry more involved in things as well you can kind of use him as the role man and let him get into the lane and make a decision kick out to the shooters it's an interesting decision of whether you would want to go with more Gasol or more Ibaka one thing I thought that the Magic did extremely well was they just would not let the Raptors enter the ball into the post whether it was Gasol even getting the ball to Gasol at the elbows so they could actually run a little bit more continuity stuff and there's just a lot of guys doing a lot of dribbling Siakam Leonard I mean most of their plays 
other than in transition were are not going to be assisted buckets and so that was uh, i think trying to get more guys involved there but let gasol work it at the elbows do some of that handoff stuff um i thought danny green tried to post up way too often on dj augustin and and on that baseline jumper that Kawhi hit to give him the lead Kawhi was like just waved him out. he's like get the hell out of there like you're danny green i know you have the matchup but uh i'm Kawhi leonard i'm gonna go and take the shot instead um so i think there's just a lot of stagnation a lot of slow trying to enter the ball to the post and getting caught in and trying to take advantage of the mismatch not enough ball movement not enough side to side you got to really make someone like Nikola Vucevic move you got to get it to the second side let guys uh, attack off the dribble uh with an advantage getting downhill where Vucevic is not a a great rim protector those are things uh, that I might look at uh, as well And, and defensively I think Ibaka is better at guarding that Vuce Augustine pick and roll due to his mobility but Gasol is way better on Vuce in the post and I think you probably stick with that and really you know not letting Vuce get going is pretty big though I think you need to continue to hold him down and and just not overreact to as well I mean it's guys like Carter Williams and and Wendu hitting shots I don't think you need to go too crazy there uh I think that what they did defensively worked and they hit a few more free throws in this game that they could still win it and try not to freak out too hard but you know really Kyle Lowry is the only guy who's left over from these teams that have like you know totally failed all these years so uh yeah maybe the, he's got some uh some problems in his head space but uh, you just gotta hope that he'll fight through that uh, what about for the magic anything pop out to you there not particularly I thought that the way they used maybe even just I was, I was trying to say maybe a little bit more Uundu, but eh, they don't really need that I mean that they, they, yeah he's a big offensive liability yeah exactly and they can they can it's kind of a not that the Raptors need a pressure release valve but it can be that for their for their defense and that makes them all the more formidable and I mean John Isaac you to me I didn't see much fatigue with him that I mean, he played 40 minutes I and he looked he looked pretty good and Augustine was only at 30 you know he had he had a lot on his shoulders but he only played 30 so no I, I didn't see too much tactically from them I, I thought Clifford did a, did a nice job overall in this game yeah I really I think they did a pretty good job on the three-point shooters I, I was really impressed with their plan and and their overall effort level they got every defensive rebound only six offensive rebounds for toronto and again this is not a team that has some of those versatile pieces like a deep playoff team is going to have you kind of got to just ride with your guys and I think I would try not to fall too in love with Carter Williams. I think part of the reason why Augustine only played 30 minutes was Carter Williams was going well. He had a couple of nice dribble moves, but I think Clifford shouldn't fall in love with him. And if it's not working, maybe go back to Augustine and Vooch a little earlier than he might have. Otherwise, I think we can hit on this one a little bit more briefly. Golden State 121, Clippers 104. And I thought really, despite the fact that the Clippers got blown out in this game i thought they actually played really really well i did too i mean they run into challenges because their starting five just isn't nearly as good as the Warriors starting five partially because two of the Clippers three best players don't start that that but but their starting five was quite positive they were I mean part of that was DeMarcus Cousins had a really rough night and and the Warriors started out slow I mean in the first six minutes I think Curry took one shot Durant took one or two and then of course Curry got going and and had a pretty crazy night but also you know Harrell was dominant in the especially in the first half offensively they didn't 
didn't really have an answer. Lou Williams had a nice game. But yeah, I thought a lot of the supporting guys were, were solid. I mean, some of them had like, you know, it was maybe more of one-way one way games. Like I thought one of the most fascinating parts of this series, and this, there's there were some parallels in this to me with the Pelican series last year, the second, second round one, where the Warriors opponent was forced to put their best perimeter defender on Durant and that guy is way too small, but he was still the best option. So that was Patrick Beverly. It was Drew Holiday last year. And then also in base alignments, Kerr was going with Draymond on Shea Gilgis Alexander, which actually makes a lot of sense because that allows him to be a little bit more of a helper. Shea got up some shots. He, they conceded some some looks to him in order to disrupt other things. But overall, I thought that that did make life harder on them. And then Shamit, who torched the Warriors in the first half just under a week ago, he was pretty quiet overall in this game. Yeah, the Clippers ended up with 33 point attempts but did not get many up in that first half i mean and this is despite these big games from lou and from harrell they only had a 94 offensive rating in this game that's really i I thought defensively their plan was excellent what it was and we saw doc rivers light into a feature zubach because he failed to execute this three minutes into the game what the plan was, was they're going to not guard DeMarcus Cousins at all. They're going to not guard Draymond Green at all. And they're going to then use that, much like Utah does with Rudy Gobert, obviously not the same type of personnel. And they're just, whether it was KD, Steph, or especially Clay, they're going to do what's called top locking them, which is basically anytime they get below the top of the arc, they're going to just stand basically on top of him, between him and the other basket, so that he just cannot run off a screen. Even if he's getting a screen set, he's just got your body in between where he wants to go, which is to pop back out towards the three-point arc. And the problem that you have there is you're giving up any kind of a backdoor, but by not guarding DeMarcus and not guarding Draymond, you've got help down there. And Zubac failed to execute that on a Durant post up and Draymond got a dunk and Rivers called time out and absolutely lit into him. But I thought that plan really worked well. They tried to get Clay going early in the second half, but Clay was only five out of 14. One of six from three was not getting amazing looks curry the off ball stuff with him really wasn't working well either i thought especially in the first half they made it difficult for him when he was trying to work off the ball with that unit with mckinney and quinn cook and iguodala and green where they really don't have any other playmakers but curry was just so incredible on the ball in this game with 38 points did it on a mere 20 shooting possessions plus 27 15 rebounds seven assists there's a sequence where cousins missed a couple of threes in a row and curry got offensive rebounds off them which is a a funny inversion and curry was just absolutely incredible in this game uh but i thought i mean the clippers given their personnel i thought defended absolutely as well as they could thought shamit did a good job garrett temple only got 12 minutes in this game which i thought really was is something he they can give him more minutes he he did a great job when he was out there on clay they might even consider starting him to get a little more size out there uh so a little disheartening for the clippers that despite how well they played defensively i mean to hold golden state to a 110 offensive rating that's actually really good this is an extremely fast-paced game to put up 121 for the warriors but it was 108 possessions i don't know but this this game despite how good the clippers were cemented to me how hopeless their task is in the series but you know that's not gonna be a surprise to anybody yeah i also want to mention just briefly 
Kevon Looney, I thought, did a really nice job oh, overall yeah. in this game. Defensively, he he's the most modern of their of the centers that actually play, and so he can do switching stuff. He can also protect the rim. I thought he did a better job in this game than than most. And then offensively, he was he was their best screen setter. That's one of my criticisms of Cousins is that he wasn't doing enough when the Clippers weren't guarding him. Draymond has gotten better at that over time. He's he, now he he's more comfortable with it. He's also a more intuitive player than Cousins. Now Cousins has. Has intuition, like I think sometimes people understate like his his basketball IQ, but he's not used to that circumstance because when was a team not guarding DeMarcus Cousins before the last little while? And so, yeah, and he finally started doing those handoffs mm-hmm. at the start of the fourth quarter, and then he immediately followed out after that. He also had six turnovers. Six turnovers. I mean, like, Draymond so, had six like, too. Draymond threw some awful passes. Oh my, in this game. Yeah, I mean, I mean that was a big part of why the Warriors were. I mean, they had twenty-one turnovers, and nearly all of them were just atrocious. Yeah, like I, I draw the line, uh, I, and I'm probably not going to do it for for the athletic for this game, but I, I do like a, a forced, unforced errors kind of. A, it's a tennis analogy, t- tennis reference. And the Clippers did a nice job defensively, but a lot of the Warriors turnovers were completely unforced. The most memorable being that one where Kevin Durant grabbed the rebound, threw it to Draymond, who was not looking, and the ball just went out of bounds. It was pretty amazing. We were on a perfect angle to see that whole thing happen. I thought Steve Kerr was very aggressive. Steph Curry only rested for four minutes in the first half. Same thing with KD. And he brought Curry back pretty quickly in the second half as well. And that enabled him to sit the last three minutes as they put it out of reach. Um, Lou Williams was awesome in the first half. Had a, a period where he was just blowing by guys. But the big key for the Warriors was only two free throw attempts for Lou. And he had a number of flailing attempts in in which he tried to draw contact. Lou, uh, I mean, 25 points on 21 shots uh, was pretty good. But when you can keep Lou off the line and he's so slight, he'll accentuate contact, get to the foul line. He wanted calls uh, on a lot of plays, didn't get them. That's been the case a lot of times in the playoffs that he hasn't gotten those calls. And I thought the Warriors, whether it's Quinn Cook, Curry, Looney, they just switched Lou Williams in the second half rather than when it was Cousins or or then later Bogut in the first half when Williams was really able to get downhill and there was also bad defense at the point of attack for just letting him not directing the ball letting him get just a straight up head of steam but once they were able to switch him a little bit more he was essentially settling for deep jumpers those didn't really go in for him very often long twos that are relatively contested for for Lou and so I mean he he and Harold both had big games Harold did not do much in the second half but uh they were negative 13 and negative 18 combined there so the Clippers were not able to win their minutes even considering that they outscored the Warriors in kind of that start of the second start of the fourth quarter bench time but the good news is for the Warriors is that time is you know about a two minute period now instead of six minutes like it is during the regular season ready to move on to the last game of the night let me see if I have anything else on this one real quick yeah, Kerr also spent the last six minutes of each half, or would have had the game remain close at the end, uh, going to that Hamptons 5 unit with Draymond Green at center. That worked extremely well. That's when they were able to break it open at the end of the first and take a 13-point lead going into halftime. Should probably discuss the ejection by KD and Beverly, just because KD is now two-sevenths of the way to a eventual suspension. 
and i thought beverly did a decent job on him beverly was basically chest to chest with him from the moment they broke the huddle at every time out like he wasn't even picking him up full court it was you know he's just he's just touching him you know and, and kd wasn't too bothered by it but then he did end up getting thrown out of the game kd has a habit of knowing when the game's over and then like getting its money's worth uh with technicals uh i also thought that the clippers during their competitive portion of the game had some pretty good looks by good shooters that just didn't go down from three and their night could have looked a lot better uh and and then they kind of made up for that late uh i think curry i want to say were all of curry's threes off the dribble i want to say it was pretty close uh, on that eight out of ten no i think i think it was closer to to closer to 50 50 but though there are some that it's that it, it can be you know like maybe it was like one dribble no he had some he had a couple that were like clay passed him one at the top of the key he had another one off of a screen from draymond there were there were a couple that were catch and shoot at least yeah, let's talk about the last game of the night now here. I, I mean, I guess, well, quickly, we should we should talk about adjustments too since it's game one. Um, Play more Garrett Temple. Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a good one. You know, Shamit really struggled to, to one out of seven. Uh, Shea Gilgis-Alexander is interesting. He had 18 points, and I thought he, he had some moments offensively, but we also, this isn't necessarily an adjustment, but we also kind of saw that at this point in his career, at least, he doesn't put pressure on the defense in a way it was good to see him get up six three-point attempts and hit three but but he doesn't put pressure on the defense in a way that's going to draw a lot of help and let him be a big assist guy he only had one assist in this game and that came very late he wasn't really able to get to the rim a lot of mid-rangers for him which he's capable of making he's got size he can take advantage of someone like curry for example there um so but that's another one where it's just it's tough i mean he played 34 minutes i thought he earned those minutes but lou williams as much as you're gonna play him he's an instant defensive liability i thought he actually had one of his better defensive games in this one uh what they might consider doing me they played some minutes with jamichael green at center i think if you're gonna do that maybe you try and time it up to where lou is off the floor and you've got shea you could get temple in there and actually really do some switching across all five positions with those groups uh just to to give a little bit of a different look defensively jamichael green i think i like that he's kind of been encouraged to let it fly from downtown by the clippers a little more i think overall the clippers need to get up more three-point attempts they got up again a lot late in the fourth quarter but not many early on especially in that first half so you got to just keep bombing and be open the warriors will give this team open three-pointers we should also mention that andre guadal was really good tonight real quickly and for the warriors i think if you're gonna go with cousins on that unit at the start of the second and fourth quarters get him in the post a little bit i mean they've got harrell out there he's got a just a massive size advantage uh, against harrell and may, maybe even if it's just he's got to catch the ball on the wing and, and back it in instead of having to worry about oh we got to enter it into him uh and then the other problem is i think sean livingston is not a great fit for that unit because he, you can just help off of him very easily i think with cousins out there if you want to get him in the post get some spacing around him and let him create i mean that's where you really need him because that unit is not going to score very well and so his shot creation his floor raising can be valuable there but if you're going to give it to him and let him shoot threes or try to drive to the basket against smaller guys he's going to have a lot of turnovers and so i think getting him in the post and then hopefully 
hopefully be able to find Quinn Cook or Clay as shooters and maybe try and get someone with a little bit more. Yeah, maybe they could try Jarebko in that spot instead of Sean Livingston, especially against a team like the Clippers where you know you're not going to just attack someone like Jarebko with a lot of these units. Just maybe see how that looks. I think Livingston, uh, when you've got DeMarcus on the floor, there isn't really any space for Livingston to get into his own post-ups. So yes, now... 15 minutes later we can get to Spurs Nuggets I suppose. So I I would lean on this one, you know, for so comparing the three the three upsets of the first day of the playoffs. For me this was more about how I would feel as Toronto than how I would feel as Philadelphia of the idea of just regression to the mean and improvement and like a game that you could a game that you could have won and I thought San Antonio played well overall so that helps it makes you feel a little bit better you also lost home court advantage and now each subsequent loss becomes a lot more important and so you know if you have another close game and you end up losing that then it becomes big trouble and I mean one of the just memorable things for me about this game something that'll stick with me from it like I don't know how how long but however long it does is how many opportunities the, the oh Nuggets God. had where it, it was a shot that could have tied the game or given them the lead and they just couldn't hit any of them some of them were wide open like Jamal Murray missed a couple threes I think there was one that Gary Harris missed that was open and Harris had a really nice night overall and it was just amazing like I I kept on thinking, like you know, kind of like the Raptors game, though they ended up taking the lead, that, oh, okay, you know, they took this hit from the Spurs. The Spurs had a lot of guys play well. They they hit, hit shots as well. And the Nuggets will come out of this clean, and then that's where it's going to go. But nope, San Antonio took care of business and pulled the game out. Yeah, there was a stretch. It was 62-59 Spurs. The Nuggets missed four straight three-pointers when it was 62-59 on four different possessions. And six out of 20 from downtown overall that was uh, atrocious they had some good looks at it late and then we got into the fourth quarter they probably had another five possessions where they could have tied and taken the lead i mean i think they must have been like close to 0 for 10 on possessions that could have given them the lead in the second half or at least tied it up and they had plenty of opportunities to be sure Jamal Murray came off a, a screen, had a chance to, to give them the lead with a, under a minute to go. Beautiful look from the elbow, could not get it to go. He struggled to eat out of 24, 0 of 6 from 3, and only one free throw attempt, which came on a cheeky steal uh, off a, a defensive rebound. So, I mean, he that's one of the big things he's going to have to improve in his game is getting to the foul line more often. I... Um, I'd be a lot more worried as the Nuggets, obviously, than the Raptors. Number one, the Raptors are way better than the Nuggets. Number two, the Spurs are probably better than the Magic. And some of the things that we saw issues with for the Nuggets here were things that have been issues for them. This, the terrible three-point shooting, they have had just some totally miserable three-point shooting games in the last month or so. They don't really have that total knockdown shooter. Their best shooter, the only player on the team to make more than one three-point attempt, was Torrey Craig. <laughs> who was two out of three that was pretty rough i think the the nuggets did defend more than well enough to win though it was a typical spurs shot chart where they finished seven of 15 from three so lowest volume in the league this year best percentage that's about where they were 15 three-point attempts that is a crazy low number in today's day and age they were 17 of 37 on twos outside of the paint 
that might be one of the largest numbers this entire season taking 46 percent of their shots as twos i'm sorry no that, that that's not correct uh that's what they hit 17 out of 37 but i mean it's 37 shots outside the paint from two that's like got to be one of the highest numbers by any team in a game this season a further eight out of 15 on from floater range and the, then they only got 16 shots through and the only difference was they usually shoot it pretty well through and they didn't in this game so uh, they shot it really well on those mid-rangers to be sure but i thought denver defended them well aldridge he i thought he was totally shut down by Jokic. Jokic is too big to back down he's got quick hands he's got length he's able to bother aldridge's shot uh, so much of aldridge for kind of a skinny guy with a high release you think of him as like oh he's this finesse player but the ability to actually be physical and back down to his spots is very key to his game and Jokic did a great job of denying that the spurs don't run a lot of high pick and roll they did run some and they got in transition some especially in a second quarter that mike malone said was a, a really bad defensive second quarter and, and that's really where they can be effective when you can get guys with a head of steam going at Jokic. you're not going to be as effective I and mean, what did you think of Jokic's game danny he was better than i anticipated defensively i thought that especially the job that he did on aldridge was was more stout uh, you the point about his strength is is well taken and as an assister as a passer, as a distributor, I thought he did a nice job of finding teammates without really forcing it too often. And coming coming from to that game right off of the Warriors game where they were throwing all these just terrible passes, it was a reminder of like, oh yeah, he can, he can find guys. My biggest concern was that he seemed passive in the final couple minutes and the Nuggets were basically looking for anybody to take the reins and the only guy who seemed willing to do it was Jamal Murray. Murray took a bunch of shots, some of yeah. them Gary good. Gary Harris had a nice end of the game too, I think. Oh, that's that's true. I was yeah, he was more like in that 3 minute to 1 minute stretch and then Jamal yeah. basically just took every shot in the final minute. And Jokic like there was that one play where he drove in and it didn't even appear that he looked for the shot and he passed and it became a turnover in the final minute. I think Denver had two attempted shots and three turnovers something something on those lines one of those was Jokic but I thought he had a very good game overall yeah only four of nine ten points the Spurs were double teaming a fair amount they did not get him into the post very often he was 0 of 3 from 3 I think the decline in his three-point shooting has been the one disappointment in his development this year down into the low 30s after I think 38 percent a year ago and not really looking to take that shot the 14 assists were good but it wasn't to me the type of plays where he was just getting guys right at the basket he probably would have had more assists if the Nuggets could have actually made a three that would have helped but a lot of it was well we're running everything through you're getting a ton of front court touches and we're just going to do a bunch of handoffs and guys will get in the lane we'll count that as an assist he definitely threw some nice passes but we didn't see like those highlight looks necessarily due to the gravity that he has so I would love to see even more of smaller guys screening for him. I thought that when the Nuggets did try that, the Spurs were ready. Uh, I thought that the Nuggets normally will catch a guy who's a center not used to getting through an on-ball screen like a Jakob Pertl or Aldridge by surprise with that little guy screening for him but they're able actually to go under that screen and Jokic is not going to pull a three off the dribble when you go under uh but I still think they could do some more of that they even try some, maybe some snug pick and rolls I think Paul Millsap also is someone where they could have smaller guys screen for him because these Spurs guards are tiny I mean uh, Derek White was awesome in this game uh on both ends but Forbes, Mills, 
those guys are can be taken advantage of i also thought actually DeRozan, you know it wasn't a great defensive game for him but it was you weren't at least seeing him getting killed which was nice to see you know compared to his toronto days defensively but he he wasn't really able to get to his spots that well either he was six out of 17 for 18 points um what else you got from this one i didn't see anything other than a couple of defensive quirks particularly concerning about monte morris's night but i mean he did end up they were outscored by 11 in his minutes. I didn't particularly like what Mason Plumley did out there. Or a couple plays where he, he he forced it a little bit. And he did have a couple nice passes, which which is good. But and, and I thought he moved his feet reasonably well defensively. Yeah. But but you do have a point here overall in that we part of the reason that I thought the Nuggets would control this series was they just played their starters more, and so much of the Spurs' success in the regular season was built on their bench unit. But in fact, the Spurs bench did win this. Gay was plus ten. Bertans was plus seven. Uh, and you know Morris negative eleven, Plumley negative seven. So they really the main bench guys for Denver did get beaten up enough, and the starters for starters time, you know, the Nuggets weren't able to win that. So I, I see your point there. One other thing I want to mention because it was it was great. I mean, first of all, Derek White had a very good game overall, but he also had the highlight of the first day of the playoffs. But I, I mean. It, I would I kind of would want to process it more because you can be a prisoner of the moment it was my favorite dunk of the year as of this moment but I would want to look back just going all over Paul Millsap and I, he got fouled on the play too I mean that was that was really impressive and then like I think it was like two or three plays later Malik Beasley tries to end Davis Bertans but but draws a foul instead doesn't doesn't complete the dunk and I mean Derek White he has he has ups he's he's a, a, i mean he, we had a really nice defensive game had a huge steal towards the end as well but i mean that that was a great highlight and he had a, it was it was good it's always nice for me when somebody plays well and they have that sort of a thing so it's not like misleading yeah white shot it well from mid-range as well he was instrumental in forcing murray into that eight out of 24 nights malone did go with Jokic and plumley together and that was when the spurs had bertans on the floor and i was like i don't know if this is gonna be good like plumley's gonna have to guard bertans and bertans hit a three from like 27 feet when plumley probably over helps a little bit uh that second quarter from the nuggets I thought they really were overhelping. They were double teaming in the post a lot, which was a major problem. And just let that let Spurs swing the ball and get guys going downhill to the rim, hit a couple of threes, both DeRozan and Aldridge. They were double teaming them. And I thought that wasn't the greatest idea. I mean, maybe you want to feel like you want to change up the looks on those guys a little bit at times, but it was pretty consistent double teaming in that second quarter. And given how well they controlled them in the second half, it was a 17 to 13 second or a third quarter for Denver that the double teaming and opening giving them the openings really seemed like it, it wasn't the right strategy the end of the game i thought malone's timeout usage could have been a little bit better they were in a baseline out of bounds situation and malone took a timeout when you're already in a baseline out of bounds presumably you have plays that you can run there and so malone and this is a perfect example to me of how calling a timeout often benefits the defense malone sets up this really awesome complex play call hubie was like oh that is a great play but Greg Popovich had just as much time to prepare his team 
defensively as Malone had to draw up a play and remind them of what they should be doing and the Spurs defended it perfectly and so that's why you'd say yeah oh we're gonna call timeout we're gonna set up a great play well the other team gets a timeout and they get a huddle too and they really could have used a timeout at the end when they ended it Murray just ended up getting it stolen trying to bring it full court when they're down three uh, a timeout there could have been more useful than whatever it was they're gonna set up uh, on the the baseline out of bounds I really don't care for the timeout in that situation if you're using the timeout to control the time or advance the ball like that's what you're or make sure you get the two for one those are the things that i think the timeout should be used for more than okay guys let's make sure we get we're gonna get a really good play here now well the other team is gonna get defensive players on the floor and they're gonna be ready to defend that really good play because they also got uh, prepared i think so uh that's just a quick size not why they lost the game but something to keep in mind going forward uh anything you would like to see more of from either team here I feel like there should be an opening for a little bit more Malik Beasley. I thought he did well overall, and his his burst can be useful for. I mean, yeah, it, it it has value on the second unit, but I don't know. I'd I'd like to see him out there a little bit more. Though you run into problems with the you know with DeRozan playing the three and and some of the other like the the Nuggets not having that kind i mean tory craig did that was there at some moments but not having that real like six six to six eight guy they'll they'll run into challenges against other teams but i think they're hitting that a little bit against against the spurs Jokic played 36 minutes i wouldn't mind if he could play 38 or 39 uh you know Millsap 34 i mean he is a little bit older but I could take a few minutes away from Plumlee and give him either Jokic or Millsap. I don't think that Plumlee and Jokic together, unless, I mean, maybe you go to that if it's Pirtle and Aldridge together, but those guys, they're only out there together to start the half. Uh, I think the Spurs a way to get Aldridge going might be a little bit more pick and pop where you take advantage of Jokic's lack of mobility getting back to Aldridge rather than trying to throw it to Aldridge in the post where I don't think he necessarily has the advantage on Jokic uh Bertans is great would love to see uh, more of him uh, as well and you know maybe DeRozan doesn't need to play quite as much uh, at 39 minutes in this one if he's not going to be scoring effectively you could go with a little bit more of White who played 28 minutes get a little more shooting on the floor uh maybe rudy gay could play a little bit more at the three over DeRozan instead if he's not gonna be quite as effective i mean you know maybe play him 34 minutes instead of 39 and your defense probably gets a little bit better uh denver zero fast break points in this game is absolutely pathetic i realize that they have been a slower paced team this year they don't have that traditional point guard who's going to push the ball up but you play in denver i mean john schumann had this stat which is amazing that this is the first year in like 30 years that denver has actually had slower than a league average pace and the spurs also really value getting back on transition defense but i mean you got to get more than zero fast break points i mean that's just that's not going to cut it and also uh you know maybe make some shots <laughs> that's uh but i i think they'll i still think they'll be okay in this series uh and i think they should feel reasonably well about how they defended the spurs in particular so uh i do think though that they gotta maybe skew a little bit more to the offense and then i think those big small pick and rolls i'd like to see more of that i'd like to see more of the little guys screening Jokic into the lane those plays especially when forbes and mills are on the floor make those guys try and guard Jokic and put the spurs into rotation 
that that would be my thought but i mean the nuggets got a decent number of three-point shots if they make a normal number of three-point shots they're right in this game yeah i don't really have much to add there oh and one more thing too the nuggets at one point in the first half they shot five straight pick and roll floaters in a row maybe you should try to get some a a little something better than that and murray kind of kind of got it going for a brief period late in the second but obviously really struggled in the second half he did have six steals somehow in this game which is uh wouldn't shock me if that's like a nugget playoff record and let's see if i had anything else murray did kind of struggle a little bit in individual defense I, i thought that when white got going a lot of that was at murray's expense either in pick and roll or just scoring over him in the mid-range and they just got to find a way to make the spurs feel Jokic a little bit more not just handing off at the elbow so much i think and it's not necessarily a straight post up either but i do think they need to get him the ball closer to the basket and force the spurs to double team i think when Jokic did post up the spurs double teamed a lot of times so go to that a little bit more rather than especially with the guards struggling the handoff stuff is not working as well that handoff stuff against the spurs it's gonna just lead to a lot of floaters a lot of mid-rangers because the spurs are gonna protect the rim first and force you to shoot longer twos so getting a three on a kick out could work a, a little bit better but I, I still i don't think that the nuggets are like sunk or anything i think they're they're uh i expect them to win game two and i i still pick them to win the series obviously if they lose game two then we'll uh we'll have something to talk about especially because when you consider how the nuggets were way better at home this year and the spurs were so much better at home that getting this road win could end up being pretty key so uh the nuggets now are gonna have to win one on the road and and as a young team with some question marks about some of their young stars and the coaching this will be some pressure so we have seen teams not be able to handle that you know i I have more faith in the raptors being able to handle it with playoff tested guys like danny green and Kawhi leonard and marcus soul than a young nuggets team where you could potentially see them get rattled with the shots not going down the way they did in game one all right, we're doing this next segment in studio here. As predicted, we're not going to have to do a lot on this Bucks Pistons game. It was a 27-point buck lead at halftime. Blake Griffin unable to play, which is a real bummer after the great season that he's had. But uh, unless that ends up getting closer, we're not going to talk about that game at all. We do have established precedent for this. The Grizzlies-Spurs series in 2016, we did not discuss unless the games were close at all. And they were not close, not looking like it's going to be close in in that series if Blake plays maybe we'll give it a little bit of a look but obviously the piston utterly overmatched when you're playing Wayne Ellington at the four against the Bucks probably about time to pack it in so let's get to the first game of today a throwback Danny to well before we started this podcast and well before many of our listeners probably were NBA fans and they're probably glad they weren't NBA fans at that time but it probably was not the 1980s it was more of the 1990s to, despite what Brad Stevens said after the yes. game and for me I mean yeah. first anyone, of all anyone who misspeaks should be shot absolutely. By the way. I think, absolutely i think that's that's a good well no no he should just get fired from the celtics and hired to run ucla just like i wanted a few <laughs> years ago that, that, that's the that's the appropriate punishment here. yeah th- that's a good policy to have when you talk for you know an hour and a half a day on a podcast and you're never going to say anything that that is wrong or have a slip of the tongue so it was an 84 74 boston win actually boston trailed by seven at halftime and then the pacers authored an eight point third quarter but the 
sad thing for me is that I didn't really think it was bad Pacers offense. This is what I expected from them in this series. They have no spacing and they have no creators and you're not being able to score against a good locked in Brad Stevens defense if that's the case. Yeah, and it, it is also true though that they could have converted a fair amount of what they what they didn't. I mean, the Pacers went zero for 13 on jump shots in just that quarter. The only two shots they made from the field were both at the basket. And I, I thought that in this game, there were the two inflection points that I noted have a big parallel, which is Thaddeus Young getting his third foul with about, I think it was about four minutes to go in the first half. Bad call, by the way. Yeah. And then Thaddeus Young getting his fourth foul with, I think it was seven and a half to go, maybe, maybe even more than that in the third quarter. And while the Pacers had kind of lost the rope a little bit at the beginning of the second half before that point, it served as a reminder for me that what Indiana is a deep team. They don't really have a replacement for Thaddeus Young on either end of the floor. Yeah, they don't. And TJ Leaf got a few minutes in this game, but you're not expecting him to contribute at really a, a playoff level. And Sabonis and Turner together, that doesn't have enough spacing, especially the way that they use Turner. I mean, I, I think Turner could be this like Channing Fry-esque shooting big man, and they just don't Or Brooke Lopez. I mean, the yeah, way, Brooke Lopez, like you sure. can play Brooke Lopez with a with another player who doesn't shoot much because they're they're not occupying the same space. And while Turner is more versatile possibly than that, he's also not as good a shooter for me uh, to me as Brooke. Not quite. I mean, especially because Brooke can shoot those like 28 footers. Yeah. But the theory of that is that if you have a big who can space the floor, it opens up a lot of other player possibilities. And, you know, then the Sabonis post-ups, which do, you know, they can take take some of the air out of the ball and and, and there are some weaknesses there. But you ha- you're building more around that and I think it's more functional. And that's part of the reason why I haven't loved that combination together, though there are limitations that you can't really avoid even with a perfect offensive. Now, the Pacers can absolutely take heart in the way that they defended Boston. Yes. Uh, 38 points in the first half and Boston did not look good. I thought that Nate McMillan had a good plan in that they almost never switch and or they at least like to avoid it. That's what he's built his system on and they switched actually quite a bit. Basically, anyone other than Kyrie and maybe Tatum at times, they were willing to switch onto even if it was someone like Sabonis and Sabonis has quicker feet than a lot of people give him credit for. He's able to move his feet reasonably well, kind of similar to Lowry Markkinen in that way. Uh, but other than little flurries at times by like a Tyreek Evans, uh, I'm looking at the box score right now. One pacer shot better than 50%. That was Corey Joseph. The damage by the end of the game, 77 offensive rating, six of 27 from downtown. They did have a bunch of shots that really rimmed out. I thought yeah. they actually, they could have been up by more to me after the first half because they had a bunch of shots that rimmed out. I thought the, the refs, including that young third foul call, were not particularly helpful to them. And so they, they could have been up by more, but then Boston brought the defense in the second half. But I mean, I'm just, their best perimeter guy is Bogdan Bogdanovich, or I'm sorry, Boyan Bogdanovich. So you're just not, and teams have really started to figure out what he does well going to that right hand. And they don't have amazing shooting. They, I don't think their scheme is really that great the post-ups from Sabonis those didn't really work very well when the Pacers did get guys like Wes Matthews or Sabonis in the post against mismatches the Celtics double teamed they weren't able to get any kind of plays off of those double teams they turned it over a ton as well which it's the Celtics did in the first half but the Pacers turned it over a ton in that third quarter so I mean they'll play a little bit better offensively I mean nobody in this day and age this bad on offense um but this is what you see in playoff series when good defenses lock in against limited teams good defense especially that have smart defensive players 
wasn't a good game plan. And I mean, the Pacers, yes, that that third quarter was a low watermark in terms of their jump shooting, but the overall full game numbers aren't that much stronger. I mean, relative to, you know, just progression of the mean. Four of 19 from mid-range. And then the Pacers only took one corner three in this entire game. All the rest of them were above the break. They were six of 26 on those above the break ones. So six of 27 overall. They they did get to the line. They got to the basket a fair amount, but I mean, it, it wasn't enough to fuel a successful offense, even if the the jump shots fell at a more reasonable rate. Yeah, and I mean, there's just a lot of plays where Corey Joseph is having to create mid-rangers at the end of the clock. Uh, Collison. There were some tough Tyreek shots too. Yeah, Collison was was 3 for 11, but only 0 of 2 from 3. I mean, he had a lot of looks where he's a 40% three-point shooter, but he just doesn't get his shot off fast enough. He doesn't look shoot enough on those plays. McDermott struggled to 1 out of 7, 0 of 5 from 3. And, he, and he's got decent numbers, but he's not. If you just look at the arc that he gets on his shot, it's not to the level of those awesome shooting specialists at this point. You know, it's not as pure as like a Redick or a Corver. And he's also not as good at moving off the ball as those guys. So he wasn't really able to be a difference maker in this one either. I mean, I think maybe you can get, try to get some more pick and pop from Turner. The, what the Celtics were doing there was trying to bring another guy over to take away that jump shot from Turner. And maybe that's how you get the Celtics defense into rotation a little bit. But they just got a lot of, of long defenders. As predicted, they didn't really miss Smart that much because there isn't that one guy with the Pacers that's going to get into an isolation or anything like that. The Pacers did try to go at Kyrie every single time that they could, and they had limited success with that in the first half. But it's, uh, I mean, I think this got five gamer written all over it right now. Yeah, that's the feel to me too. One of the questions that I was interested in going into the game was how Brad Stevens was going to manage his rotation without the starter Marcus Smart. And he ended up running a narrow rotation. It was really eight guys. Jalen Brown got the start. That was not a big surprise. And then Marcus Morris with 20 points in 29 minutes. Gordon Hayward, who was played 30 minutes, but was 4 12 from the field. And then Terry Rozier, who was on the floor for some good moments, but wasn't effective as a jump shooter himself, or was one of six from the field, only one of three three. Yeah, now the Celtics, I mean, I don't think that this might our uh, Indiana defense is that unbelievable without Oladipo. They kind of fell off since uh, his injury. Still finished it at number four in the NBA. So it's a quality unit. Uh, I didn't think the Celtics got great looks. Kyrie struggled to six out of 17 uh, and only got up five three-point attempts. He needs to take more threes than that, I think, given how good of a, a shooter he is. And Jalen Brown really struggled. He was not in the closing lineup of the first half, partially because Morris played so well. And then Hayward, he they switched him quite a bit. Some of those times you try to back up the way he used to in, in Utah, get in the lane, create space. He's looked better of late, but he didn't have a, a good game, did not look like the type of player who can be a difference maker in the next series. And that's really what we're looking for, really harbingers of how those next series are going to go at this point in time, I think, with, uh, you know, we'll see. I don't want to go crazy after a game one, but this is one of those game ones that fell exactly into what our prediction was. Right. And and also, I mean, I think it's just the way that that kind of intellectual gravity works when the other side of that series that we're looking forward to, it seems so clear with with Milwaukee just decimating yeah. the Pistons. So you're already seeing one side and you're like, oh, well, maybe the other one's there. But yeah, I mean, I think that the Pacers can play, they can play meaningfully better and also they can just get more fortunate than they did in this game. But one something that's always hard to reconcile or so that to deal with is when you have a vision for a series, even if maybe it's a little bit more extreme than some other people and game one plays into it so perfect because then you're sitting there and it's it's all this reinforcement. I would say bias, but I'm not necessarily sure that's what it is. And so it could, it could be wrong. The Pacers have had this wonderful overall season. But yeah, I mean, they're 
gonna it's gonna be hard for them to put up enough points. And if the if they play games in the nineties, I don't think it's gonna be in the eighties again, but if they play games in the nineties, I mean Boston has to me has the better tools to win close games should a game be close. Yeah. This is one of those series which in twenty nineteen you would expect it to be more free flowing, but no, both teams played traditional bigs most of the time, Horford and Baines. Tice got a little bit of time during the competitive portion of the game. Not that much time was spent with Horford at center and maybe that's something that Stevens will go to more in case of emergency but I thought actually the only time the Pacers offense looked good was during a few minutes in the first quarter when uh, Horford was out there at center then maybe they don't really have quite the size and this isn't a team that's going to be able to stretch out Baines and as long as they're stopping the Pacers from scoring they can get enough offense from Kyrie and maybe one other guy got hot this time it was Morris and that's enough to to win this series and to win it pretty comfortably anything that comes to mind for you as far as things that these teams might do differently going forward i don't think stevens is going to change the starting lineup just because morris played better than jalen brown i thought brown you know i thought defensively he he did a did a solid enough job and, and morris in this i think you want basically the idea is you want to think about who is our best five moving forward not necessarily about each given game unless they feel like the series is more in doubt than i do and brown is probably the more logical fit there depending on how long they think marcus smart's gonna be out so yeah i don't see much on their end and for the i mean really for the pacers the bigger adjustments are those big picture things that we talked about and that you can't really do that in a series you know like yeah figuring out the turner sabonis dynamic is an important thing for the pacers franchise moving forward but you don't do that in a week in a that's just not the way this happened yeah also worth noting too that a big part of why the pacers were willing to score as they did in that first half was turning boston over in oh a man that, yeah that probably wasn't yeah, they had five turnovers in like the first four minutes something like that yeah and and i mean not quite as bad as those ridiculous warriors turnovers from yesterday but not good uh i think one thing they can do is when they do get that post mismatch and and remember boston has a lot of experience going back to last year with lebron james playing a full series against him where he tried to go after mismatches in the post and that was a Cavs team that has a lot more shooting than this pacers team does so they're good at getting guys out of mismatches double teaming scramming guys but the pacers got to have more spacing and more of a plan and know where the outlets are going to be on those double teams when they do come against the mismatch I, mean, I think Thaddeus Young he shot 35% from three this year always not a high volume guy not a ton of gravity but him being in the dunker spot with the level of athlete that Boston has and how locked in they were defensively that's not going to work he's does isn't going to get up for alley-oops really he needs to be in the corner we noted that they got zero corner threes basically this entire game during the competitive portion of the game so I, I think having him out in the corner and hope that he can make some shots for you and open things up would be something that I would look at maybe more time for Tyreek maybe even more time for someone like Aaron Holiday Aaron Holiday might be their best shot creator out of pick and roll yeah you very I, well I mean, might be. as crazy as that is to say and Holiday you know I think he's better defensively than Collison you might say at this point in time he's not going to be efficient but this isn't going to be an efficient series it looks like and you need to just create clean looks even you know I mean the Pacers it was, I remember it was years ago Joakim Noah talking about some of those bull series saying like oh man we were just fiending for a bucket and some of those series and that's what the Pacers were like I mean just even getting an open mid-ranger off a pick and roll generally not considered a good shot in today's NBA they would love to have that right right and and that's why I talk a lot about dependent talents and the idea that there are certain players who offensively just need to be set up and the Pacers happen to have especially with Oladipo being out they happen to have a lot of those guys and so you even if they're an inferior player in terms of like player rating if you want to do that there is a specific value to creating better looks for yourself and others and yeah 
Galladay is a decent option. And I mean, like Joseph, I thought he had some nice defensive moments. He was their leading scorer in this game. Yeah, and, and he at least will get penetration, right. like Nash under the basket. And, and at least he'll get enough penetration that maybe you force the defense to make a mistake, even if he's not going to finish the play himself. Well, I cracked up. There was one, I think it was in the first quarter, where Darren Collison gnashed under the basket, dribbled all the way around, and got basically a free throw line jumper. And the Celtics were just never that perturbed by it. They're just like, okay, yeah. we'll just, if that if that's what happens, that's what happens. Uh, they're not going to do this, but I think Doug McDermott actually could be an option for offense out of the mid post. Bogdanovich maybe in the post as well against Kyrie. I thought Kyrie, I mean, the strides that he has made as a defender since leaving Cleveland really deserve just a ton of credit. I thought he was as solid as you can expect him to be in this game. Uh, so we'll see what they can come up with it to boost the offense here. But, you know, ISO post-ups against this team with guys who are relatively mediocre at that skill is not going to get it done. Should we talk Portland OKC? Yeah, I, I think that there are, there are a couple of, of takeaways, some significant in the immediate, some more significant in the long term here. But I, I think for me, the most striking part of this game was some of the tactical work by Billy Donovan in a negative way. I mean, you're, you're hmm. facing you're facing a center that Oklahoma City is intimately familiar with. Ennis Canner was there for years, the infamous can't play him thing that was in the playoffs with Ennis Canner. And in the early part of this game, Oklahoma City was doing a lot of, Stephen Adams, I think, seven or nine points in the first couple of minutes. And it was the, they were running the two-man high pick and roll. And usually, I don't think Westbrook, yeah, I think he only took one shot during that stretch because they were just finding Adams and Adams getting shots. And then they just went away from it. It wasn't particularly like, maybe maybe it was to feed yeah. other guys. And then they had some success with it, you know, around the four-minute mark, too. And then they, they kind of went yeah, away Yeah, and, and so I, I think that what it reminded me of was was there were a couple of, and then I, I saw Brandon the same thing where, yeah, some of it was just Dame Lillard being fantastic. But Oklahoma City has the personnel to challenge some of what Portland does so well. And I thought that generally speaking, maybe it's because Paul George is injured. Maybe it's because he's not right. I thought they didn't press their advantages enough. Yeah, I I, I agree with that in part. I do think that if you look at OKC's shot chart, it's not bad. 36 shots at the rim. Uh, they took 33 three-pointers. And they it wasn't only, and Dame Lillard even said this after the game, it wasn't like, oh, it was the guys we want shooting him. Right. Thinking, Paul George was 4 of 15 from three. It hit a couple late. I mean, they, they were sitting on three three-pointers, like three for 30 at one point. And they hit a couple late as they were trying to, a desperate comeback in the last few minutes. But 4 of 15 from three for Paul George in 43 minutes is, that's not enough three-point, or, or that's not good defense. I mean, Portland prides themselves on taking away the three. And yeah, okay, you want to give it up to Schroeder and Westbrook. They were a combined 0 for 11. Fine for me. Jeremy Grant, 0 for 3. But 15 to Paul George, who's really their one good shooter. They did t- Ferguson only played 16 minutes, but he, he only got two shots. Right, and, and it's not like Portland made this conscious decision that Paul George's shoulder isn't right, so we just want to we just want him to take a bunch of shots. Yeah. They, they, those shots were their defense, not where they were conceding shots that they shouldn't have conceded, especially because Oklahoma City had had these limited players that were that were out there on the floor. I mean, and something else that was notable, Ken Pelton brought it up early in the game, and it was it was largely true throughout was that Russell Westbrook was at his best, not surprisingly, in transition when he was able to get when they were able to get those feedback loops, get some stops, push push in transition. The Blazers didn't really have an answer there. But then there was that weird stretch. I think that was at the beginning of the third quarter where Portland just did a bad job defending Russell Westbrook. Yeah, they and in particular they just didn't get back. I thought right. that from the time that he came back in, I mean, remember Portland put up 39 points. They led 39-25 after the first on some great three-point shooting. And then from when Russ came back in, really that second and third quarter, they Russ was pushing it down their throat and I thought him spraining his ankle late hurt a, a little bit. 
open, it, just on, on a little play, no contact, trying to close out a, on Dame Lillard. Uh, but yeah, and I think, you know, with Cantor on the floor, I thought Zach Collins really had a pretty miserable game defensively in this one, protecting the rim, moving his feet in, in pick and roll defense, boxing out. Uh, but it was the transition defense, which Blazers usually are pretty decent at, that I thought was a problem. And Russ was just getting right to the rim. We talked this year at times about how his shot chart includes too many jumpers. That really wasn't the case. He was eight out of 17 and eight of eight from the foul line. Uh, did have a good game because he had 10 rebounds and 10 assists um, and four turnovers, which is not bad for him. So I thought he was good. And really, we mentioned the shot making five out of 33. Portland was 11 out of 25 and started the game 10 out of 20. Dave Miller was five for 11 and one of them was from the corner and the other four were basically like 30 footers off the dribble. Including the first possession of the game. Yeah. He, he just he just took one. And but that's all that he had. I mean, I thought Portland did, or, or OKC did a great job. On yeah, it. other than like that weird Westbrook lapse. I, was that right after he turned his ankle? I can't remember if it was related to uh, that. Yeah, I don't remember. But he basically, yeah, he had like his hands on his knees just kind of waiting for the screen to come. And Dame was like, all right, if you're going to be off of me, yeah, I'm at 30 feet, but I'm going to just pull it. And, and he made that. And so one of the, when I was talking about the idea of, of OKC's tactics, one of the other points here is who was taking the shots for Portland. I mean, we going back to the two times the Warriors beat them in recent years was the question was, can Alfred Camino and Mo Harkless make shots? Those guys combined for 12 points on three of 10 from the field. Well, that 10 combined shots was fewer than the other three starters each had separate. Yeah. And Canner, I mean, a lot of Canners came off offensive rebounds. He had seven himself. And that was a notable part of this game that we'll talk about Canner's night a little bit more. But I didn't think not only in terms of the shots, but in terms of putting the ball in Aminu and Harkless's hand that OKC was was forcing Portland out of what they really wanted to do. I thought they did a good job defending Lillard one-on-one. And then that got into something well, else. And two-on-two. And two-on-two. And two-on-two. Something else that I thought was weird in the game, and you brought this up on Twitter during it, was with Oklahoma City's defensive approach, and, and it, they forced some tough looks from Dame, having Dennis Schroeder as the guy on the floor guarding CJ doesn't make any sense. Because Schroeder offensively, when he's playing with Westbrook and Paul George, he's more of an ancillary guy. He was zero for seven from three. I don't like him as an off-ball play. You know, as a as an ancillary playmaker, you know, that grabbing a couple dribbles and a good decision, you know, he can do that. He had a nice little stretch. I think it was in the second quarter. I'm trying to remember. There was one little part of the game where he played pretty well. But when his, when the primary task of that player, you know, perimeter player number three, is to defend CJ McCollum and not make mistakes, you have to have somebody better than Dennis Schroeder on the floor because that is just not what he does. Yeah, and when he's shooting 0 of 7 from 3, I mean, and a lot of pick and roll, mid-rangers, floaters, uh, Schroeder. Well, and Portland just straight up conceding threes to him. Like, when, yeah. whenever a team is conceding threes to a player, remember all of the other things that they're making harder. Because right. that individual person is gumming up a whole bunch of other stuff. I mean, there are a bunch of different examples we go through over the years. And so if that shooter, especially if they're a perimeter guy, cannot make them pay, then you have to have a really strong positive case for them to be on. Yeah, 36 minutes uh, for a shooter, 11 points, 5 of 17, only got to the foul line for two attempts. And uh, OKC's bench, interestingly enough, ended up uh, actually in the positive other than Schroeder. Those were key minutes to me. Uh, the minutes where Zach Collins is on the floor, Seth Curry, who uh, got hot in the second quarter, Evan Turner, Rodney Hood. They went to the all-bench group in the first half, did not do that in the second half. CJ played instead of Myers Leonard. Uh, but that was really interesting. And, and when Paul George was on the floor, he was able to not guard Turner, mess some things up. But the strategy seemed to be for Portland that they were going to, if Westbrook and Schroeder were playing together, they're going to try and get either Hood or Turner into the post uh, on Schroeder to get some D 
decent looks and you mentioned also uh, cj's uh, abilities there to uh use his size to get to his spots uh, on trailer cj ultimately 24 points on uh, 26 shooting possessions wasn't amazing but this was this was not a good offensive game um the defense on, on lillard we could talk about that a little bit more we did see okc with steven adams out on the floor on these pick and rolls not quite the level of pressure that we saw new orleans put on dame lillard where you just have to give the ball up instead uh it was adams up at the level of the ball stringing him out and the pass to Cantor resulted in mixed results <laughs> which which is terrible uh way to phrase it but he at one point had three straight turnovers where he just caught it and traveled or just couldn't handle the pass other times where he was able to catch it closer to the rim i thought that jeremy grant had a wonderful defensive game he did. as the back line of that okc defense with adams out on the floor on those plays now he brings his own offensive limitations of course but you know, i don't think it, it, he was necessarily the problem but it seemed after that first quarter portland was really struggling to get good shots third quarter it's all isos right away dame really only got downhill out of pick and roll like once in the last three quarters like at the very at one point in the fourth quarter when he got fouled and hit some key free throws so they did a great job on him i mean he and 5 of 11 on the type of shots that he made in this game i don't think that's sustainable or, or that he was taking in this game that far out on the floor and they can even clean that up a little bit more too what do you think of Cantor's game overall which hit on a little bit i think the most important part of his game from a positive perspective was just being a force on the on the offensive glass okc there were there were a few times i noticed it more in the first half though i think was just as true in the second where i was shocked that the thunder just didn't really have a guy on him they weren't they were focused more on like kind of getting to a spot rather than making sure that that the biggest guy basically the real only offensive rebounder other than opportunistic guys was going to be there and then the other thing that bothered me at moments in this game and it happened a couple times early and a couple times late maybe it's because of the stash bros and maybe it's just because billy donovan doesn't does it kind of acknowledge this is that limited defenders oftentimes the thing they do best is post defense because post defense doesn't ask them to move it doesn't have to ask them to react and steven adams i think there were four times that i can recall just posted up Ennis canner and he got buckets on a couple of them but they were some of adam's hardest shots in the game and you're not you're not creating good looks for other people generally that way because they weren't like cutting off of it or setting like setting screens for people in the corner or something like that maybe some off ball movement more like what portland does yeah I, I agree with you and it's for cancer i mean he had some moments he did a pretty decent job on the glass although okc did end up with 18 offensive rebounds a lot of that was at zach collins expense yeah i mean nerland's had five in 12 minutes yeah so i, I think when cancer was out there they did an acceptable job on the defensive glass and you mentioned with his seven offensive rebounds how good he was especially late he got some real key plays as they're trying to kill the clock to let him run time down a little bit more i think though despite the fact that i picked portland in seven and despite the fact that they won this game i actually think that i feel better about okc's chances after watching this game than i did going i agree with you and i mean it helps me feel a little bit better as, as somebody who picked oklahoma city but the big like the only thing that gives me real pause because i think oklahoma city's offense will be better than it was in this game even if even if it's just like a dead cat yeah. bounce they're they'll they're their ancillary guys will will shoot better and their defense looked a lot better after the first quarter so that it's reasonable to think that that was the aberration considering that was the start of the series anything else my only real pause there is is paul george i mean he didn't look right to me physically it manifested more on the offensive end than the defensive end but there were a few times where like he didn't really get a hand up and i mean paul george i had him third in defensive player of the year i think you did as well he had some really good disruptive moment shirt this wasn't like a bad paul george defensive but the difference between like this game and what he can do it matters and then on the offensive end i mean 4 of 15 from 
from three, eight of 24 from the field overall. That, that you know, he Oakley, he was in my most valuable player for a reason because OKC rises and falls a lot on both ends of the floor with how he plays. Yeah, and, and speaking of rising, George said he couldn't raise his arm above his shoulder as recently as a couple days ago. Yeah, so that's not definitely good. that Bucks game that they needed to win. You know, he was not physically capable of playing in that game. He said the first time he was really able to shoot was this game. And you would imagine, I mean, he had tape on both shoulders. You'd imagine that probably the only way he's able to do that is because he's getting some sort of an ejection. And number one, trying to shoot with part of your shoulder numb is pretty difficult. Just not being able to be in your routine to shoot on off days. He's probably going to be pretty sore after today as well once that shot wears off. And I don't know that to be true, but you would imagine if it's like, oh yeah, I couldn't raise my arm above my head three days ago and now I'm able to do it. Maybe that's the reason. And that's a real bummer because he's had such a good year and you wonder whether some kind of a surgery is coming for him in the offseason. And if he's not going to be able to be close to the player that he was and especially to hit open three-point shots, you know, I do think OKC may be sunk in this series. But I, I think their defense, this is looking like another series. A lot of these series really are, are trending that way unexpectedly given the overall tenor of the league these days as another defensive series it's really looking that way right now and i mean with with Cantor out there it's it's really an indictment of how bad the thunder offense is right now that this is even looking like a close series because that thunder defense is gonna really cause problems for portland and dame lillard i think if he can be the best player in the series clearly then portland has a pretty decent chance and he was that tonight but it took a lot for him to get there and he didn't seem to have quite the same verve after he took that blow i think it was in the second quarter uh got hit in the head going in for a layup so i mean there wasn't any concussion issues but that's something to watch is whether he's as aggressive going forward so uh, if he can be the best player in the series i think they got a pretty decent shot if he can't if paul george starts to emerge a little bit more if westbrook starts to emerge a little more and i thought westbrook was good tonight then i still like okc and i mean it does seem it seems like if this is going to be a seven gamer it's going to be one of those the home team wins every single game it seems like in these rock fights under talented teams or or bad fitting teams i mean under talented maybe isn't fair but you know teams that are not playing their best however you want to describe it home court really seems to play in in those types of series and i think you know if if portland wins on tuesday i'm not writing okc's chances off to take it to seven slides i i think portland's got big time problems winning in okc something else i'm going to keep an eye on here is the drumbeat of games so i had talked in the pre in the series preview about how one of the reasons i felt better about picking Oklahoma City was because there was this kind of a little bit of a gap but now that we're in the series it's basically every other day they play Sunday Tuesday Friday Sunday Tuesday so like Paul George is only getting a day off after every game other than the travel day between between the second third one and so we'll just have to see how much better if it is even better his shoulder looks each subsequent game and if it's you know if it looks this way in game two then they're gonna have some problems. a couple other notes here we saw the Westbrook not get a foul call and then immediately foul someone again he tried to just go up and foul the guy and they didn't give the call and he actually knocked it away and then he went for the loose ball and committed an obvious foul again i mean he does that once a game and that was his fourth foul in the third quarter it's just yeah, it was like three minutes to go i think in the third uh, quarter or something i mean is he 12 years old like it's just ridiculous that he still does that like like college players don't do that high school players don't do that he's the only one in the nba who does it that often where it's just an intentional tactic this is the playoffs you're important you can't get your fourth foul like that yeah it's not like he's lebron james who never fouls out of games and never gets in foul you know that yeah. sort of a circumstance where a player might have one or two to give and also russell West- westbrook thinks he gets fouled all the time so it, it can create problems yeah so westbrook's ankle is something to look at yes as well uh yeah it really was 
was going back and looking at my notes that three that Lillard hit when Russ just had his hands on his knees and just wasn't concentrating or was fatigued or whatever I mean that was probably the key shot of the game uh and yeah I think that's all I got on this one so far uh in terms of adjustments anything you can point to here if the Thunder are willing to try other things I mean for what it, Ferguson only played you know 16 minutes he, he got a little frustrated at, at, yeah. at moments in time and, and he that, the, the weird the too. weird double technical was that with him and CJ yeah and but I mean do you dust off Abdel Nader like do, like just somebody different Nader has actually like, like hit some shots played, this he's, year yeah he's had some moments where he played well he brings a different look somebody that the Blazers have to actively defend like I, I think you might as well consider trying somebody like that as opposed to whether it's shooter because he's he's smaller and he doesn't really make like a lot of a lot of defense for especially for guys who aren't like plus defenders is about just making the guy feel your presence and adjust based on it this is something we talked about with jj reddick on saturdays and if Schroeder's not doing that then you probably need to have somebody on the floor when he's not relied on for creation who does maybe that's nader maybe it's more of terrence ferguson trying a few options because they need to yeah and now their defense isn't why they lost this game true uh and you know i'd like to see westbrook take more shots and shooter take fewer frankly and they both took 17 although westbrook got to the foul line more um i think for portland i'd like to see a few things one of them is pick and roll on one side and then design to swing it to the other side to your creator and uh especially you run that first pick and roll with cj get adams way out on the floor swing the ball and and really what's happening is the other guys guarding the wings aminu and harkless it's a different strategy than what new orleans is doing because those guys are kind of staying home if you throw it on a short to either of those guys their man is still there it's really the pass to the roll man that is open and then you've got the low man grant coming over to try and disrupt that and then maybe you swing it to the opposite corner and they're, they're putting pressure on cancer to make a play and the, as i mentioned they had a, the result was mixed results well, well uh, and also okc had some trouble i noticed it more in the first quarter they were losing guys off ball like they were so yeah. focused on the primary action they have they have a lot of guys that are kind of wired that way of like seeing what's going on and then then the blazers have some really good off ball stuff they can just start using that more and just creating an opportunity whether it's a shot for them or just a seam that then can create a numerous other yeah they did actually get a nice little back door to cj off of that flare screen yeah. action that they like to run but uh, to finish my thought i think even if you're not you know gonna throw it to amino and he's gonna be wide open to attack the rim what you do is you get adams out on the floor going towards the sideline throw it back to someone like aminu and then you swing it to your other playmaker whether it's dame or cj on the weak side and let them try and attack immediately especially if one of them is guarded by Schroeder. i think also even some small small pick and rolls they're gonna have Schroeder on the floor let dame just go at him you know he's just not that physical of a defender and just again this is going to be another one of these series i think where it's just going to be a rock fight and where you talk about all right you know isolation play it's not really that efficient well if you're not scoring that well all of a sudden that can look like a little bit better of an option for okc i billy donovan in tough spots he started both the uh third and fourth quarters with this he, he likes to go to these actions at the end of games small small pick and rolls with with a slip action uh i think they can do even more of that you'll remember they did a play like that to get paul george that wide open game winner against the nets for example i didn't think portland had great communication on those plays it's also a way to get paul george a size mismatch and even even if you're going to switch that george is so good at shooting over guys now he's got to actually make the shots obviously but that's something that i think uh, they can look at as well and i mean they don't have that much in terms of spread with this group i mean they really like markeith morris isn't hitting shots grant it doesn't have a ton of gravity either so the idea of our 
Russell Westbrook, Stephen Adams spread pick and roll. They don't have that spread element really. You know, maybe you could try and say we'll go with George at the four and we could put Nader at the three, but they don't really have anyone like that either. Patrick Patterson has has been uh dead and buried in this rotation for quite some time and it hasn't hit shots in his OKC tenure. So certainly you'd like to find some other ways to attack Cantor. I love what Westbrook did in transition. They got to keep yeah. doing that. Um and for Portland, if Zach Collins continues to struggle, I might actually even consider Byers Leonard as a superior option. Uh and maybe Leonard at least can get some pick and pop and whether that Portland bench unit's going to be able to survive because remember OKC they basically keep either Westbrook or George on the floor at all times. Yeah, and that group was plus 2. They were plus 2 in the minutes when Lillard didn't play in the first half and I think they were outscored by 7 in the second half even though CJ was on the floor for basically time. Yeah, I'd love to even see Portland with Lillard and Curry in the game. You know, usually it's going to be shooter on him, do small small pick and roll and have Steph Curry or Seth Curry's pop for a 3. Yeah, uh, uh they said on the broadcast by the way that Seth is a better defender than Steph is. I, I'm not quite willing to go that far. Um all right, uh, Portland and Utah up next. Final game of the night now, Houston and Utah series we were most looking forward to. I fear I don't see it that way any longer. For me, the most important part of game one was Houston's defense. Utah was under a point for possession during the competitive portion of the game. I think their offensive rating was around a 99. And they were Houston was forcing them mostly into tough shots. The U- Utah got a few, you know, of course, a few, a few clean looks, some Gobert lobs and everything else. But they also forced the Jazz into a bunch of turnovers, which I think was an important part of it. And I mean, and, and Utah in the early portion of the game, I think they only had four three-pointers in the first quarter. And Houston had been that kind of a defense during the second half of this year. We wondered if it would continue. And at least in this game, it did. Yeah. And even when Houston wasn't going well defensively, they caused problems for the Jazz. It's not quite the same Houston scheme as it had been. They don't switch everything with their center now. But nonetheless, Utah is just not able to get the kind of penetration that they normally normally do by swinging the ball by running tons of pick and rolls 26 three-point attempts is not a ton for this team seven out of 26 certainly they could have shot it better in particular jay crotter missed a, a fair number of pretty decent look but clearly this was not utah doing what they needed to donovan mitchell didn't get many good looks himself either they were seven of 18 on the field mitchell was with only 19 points even some of that came late i think that the jazz pick and roll just doesn't work for Houston. Houston is the best team in the NBA at limiting shots by the pick and roll ball handler. The Jazz takes about the most. And moreover, Houston is really able to limit that pick and roll without allowing penetration, without giving up three-point shots. So Utah doesn't have a ton of places to go from here. A lot of attention, obviously, is going to be on the Jazz defensive strategy. In the first half, I thought they really got carved. They weren't providing much resistance. I mean, really, especially when it was Royce O'Neal, all Harden had to do was take one dribble to his right, and then he was he was going down hill he could go back was, to no it wasn't even to his right it was just in a straight line, line that's true and, and yeah. it was almost even diagonal to his left to get the guy right behind him uh and then just he was even shoving the guy off behind him to just get a runway to the lane yeah and so then that forced gobert into some challenging choices i thought early on he was being too aggressive and 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 a little bit more later but i think he did better later on of being more afraid of the floater than the pass or some of the other options because that's a tough shot i mean even if even if it's open and and 
and Harden has been better on those this year when you compare that to an alley-oop from Capella or a corner three like I mean they were there were so many corner threes was was it 10 in the first half it was nine in the first half and just for reference Denver's defense was last in the NBA this season giving up 8.9 corner three-point attempts a game and the Jazz who their whole system is set up to limit corner threes and limit three-point attempts and limit shots at the rim they gave up a ton of shots at the rim and a ton of corner threes they, and they, and they were wide open too bit. like they, yeah. it wasn't just oh you're, you're just taking corner threes this was yeah. PJ Tucker with no one within 10 feet of him those kinds of shots and it is true that Houston did not get to the free throw line much in especially in that first half but overall in the entire game but if you are conceding the other two and you're not providing a ton of resistance resistance then it doesn't really matter that you're stopping the third one well and the Jazz did adjust in the second half yes I thought they were they were a little bit less just giving Harden a runway still forcing him to his right and still just staying on his hip a little bit better than they had it in the first half uh I thought also I mean because during the competitive portion of the game he's only one out of eight from floater range so they did a decent job of getting him to shoot floaters I thought Gobert if anything was a little bit too aggressive coming out and contesting that floater that's part of why he missed some of them but they also gave up a lot of dunks to Capella who had 16 points on eight out of 13 or what they were doing was because they're worried about the Capella lob then the guy from the corner was having to come in and get into Capella's legs and that's how they were giving up those corner threes so I think in the second half they did find something that helped them a little bit against Harden and Harden if you look at his overall numbers were not crazy 29 points 11 at 26 4 of 10 from 3 10 assists so he definitely had a good game an efficient game he was the engine for them but I think that Houston you know they gave up 39 three-point attempts to them that's not awful they kept him off the foul line 11 to 12 they made him shoot a lot of floaters I didn't think that the defense especially once they cleaned off the on-ball stuff with Harden was better but they just can't score I mean that's and it's just an absolute redux of the last two games or the two games in Utah last year where they couldn't get anything going so it's not really I don't think it's going to be the defense that's the problem for the Jazz series ultimately it's also hard to think of with their with Utah's personnel what sort of wrinkles they can add in offensively defensively we already saw them make some adjustments and I think those adjustments look better but offensively their their DNA what they're trying to do you know there was a we discussed on the NBA cast the idea of Utah's success or in this case lack thereof late clock and Houston's approach is oftentimes trying to force teams into tough late clock shots and Utah doesn't necessarily unless Mitchell gets on when he had that nice lefty scoop which I think was late clock in this one they don't really have the guys to to attack in those situations no they don't have anybody who does any kind of posting up at all Mitchell is the only one who can really create separation off the dribble Joe Ingles was totally shut down I, they went to Corver and he was questionable with the knee injury and and Corver couldn't get going zero shot attempts in 10 minutes and then Houston started relentlessly attacking him in the second half with small small pick and rolls that they didn't want to switch and then they're letting Daniel House get downhill out of those plays uh, which uh, I thought was and he he had a really nice game he was impressive to me uh so uh, with some nice drives and good decision making and he got up 10 three-point attempts himself so yeah I mean well, it, and House is a part of the story also because we wondered how many guys Mike D'Antoni was going to play how heavily and and granted in a game that was basically a 20 pointer with about six minutes to go you don't get a full representation but in the competitive portion of the game Fareed House Austin Rivers and Gerald Green all played meaningful minutes yeah Utah had brief pockets of success most of it occurring actually when Derek Favors was on the floor Utah was actually at their best offensively when they had their starters on the floor at the start of the 
the first and third quarters when they went with favors engelbert we had wondered whether they would just ditch that unit entirely but that actually i don't know whether it was just luck or because having more finishers and more offensive rebounders and more screeners maybe confused the rules a little bit for houston but i I thought that the offense looked better there they also just forced more turnovers during those periods especially at the start of the third one i think they got it back within six at one point but a lot of that was being able to run uh, but i i wouldn't read a lot into that and then they also looked better when farid was on the floor defensively rather than capella houston didn't even have to go to their lineup with tucker at center at all in not a ton of minutes from any of these guys tucker 32 capella 32 paul 32 harden 33 and it's just gone final right now actually 122 90 that is uh not a good start for the jazz they got they ended up getting outscored by 20 in the fourth though a lot of that was a garbage time also something that i think the jazz got better at later in the game we talked about it more in terms of harden the context of harden of guys helping off the corners but in in the case of chris paul it was even more egregious because paul is so much more limited as a finisher he did have that one lefty finish when it looked like i think it was favors was challenging challenging him to finish basically but chris paul is looking for the pass to the corner there he's not looking to to find that layup or maybe i mean if the role man's open then of course he's going to go in that direction and that was the the pass and the shot that utah was conceding and that was shocking yeah i think you do want to try and make chris paul be a scorer use it more energy offensively for a, the, a good defensive game too oh yeah yeah so for for the jazz and i thought houston they were just tight that very few miscommunications defensively which we saw some of early in that series the plan for utah was that they were going to try and have their bigs basically start slipping the screens before the screen was actually set with gobert in favors and what that was doing at times was because the guy was slipping the screen and still kind of running in between his man uh, that he's trying to screen and the ball handler even though he's moving he still is kind of setting the screen anyway chris paul was able to draw one offensive foul by going through that it seemed like it was having some success they switched it up in the second half to just try and set more solid screens neither of those really particularly worked that well gobert did have 22 points uh, but was negative 23 i thought he didn't have quite the same defensive impact as he usually does and and he had four turnovers as well had some illegal screens um yeah what else you got here on this one it's just it's depressing to me because it looks like it's just for all the reason that we thought this series might be different this year and it would be a closer matchup certainly game one would indicate it's going to be more i want to see if houston's offense so the houston had a lot of offensive rebounds in the first quarter or first half sorry they had six and that was an advantage they had. Utah was playing bigger. It was it was a surprise, and they were getting him from. I think all five starters had at least one of those six offensive rebounds. They only had two in the second half, so maybe that was just the Jazz kind of getting back. They've been a very good defensive rebounding team of years. So, but if if that's another way that Houston can create some advantage, that would be even more devastating. Yeah, I think Utah needs to hit the offensive glass harder. Houston is not a fast break team. Paul Harden, those guys do not want to push the ball. Capella will run the floor, but I think your bigger problem is on offense. You're better taking that trade off and yeah if you don't get some of those offensive rebounds if they want to push it they'll push it and maybe they beat you that way and you have to take it a little easier but i think that you got to send at least two guys to the offensive glass they only had seven offensive rebounds this game five of them were by gobert also hard to get an offensive rebound when you're never getting penetration of the basket though right that, like that that's makes it harder. you know forcing the forcing the big to commit and then you get either you get the layup or you get the tip in there were a, a few of the gobert's plays were like that but not nearly as many as let's say houston yeah and utah did try to run when the opportunity was there when they could force turnovers the other big problem for utah was just an atrocious turnover rate uh, they finished with 18 turnovers and turned it over on 20 percent of their possessions throughout most of the game that was another big problem just not getting enough shots 
up and so they'll shoot better than seven out of 27 from three you would think maybe not i mean they're being forced to take a lot of difficult above the break temps at the end of things um what else can utah go to here i mean this is the same thing we've been talking about with with them since you know uh 355 days ago we got a question on the nba cast and i was wondering about it during the game of like how much would mike conley have helped and i think having another ball handler would have been useful but i don't think that would have solved a lot of these kinds of problems against the rockets how do you feel yeah this rockets defense was good last year they look like they are getting back there now pj tucker was awesome as a help defender in this game i do think that utah didn't go after harden at all and yeah that especially in the post doesn't work that well and they want to get out of doing that but at the very least try to get something in semi-transition we're able to attack him downhill make him move laterally maybe you also try to get donovan mitchell coming off of some screens that are set by the center and you could do that on one side and then try to run a pick and roll on the other there were far too many possessions where utah never swung the ball to the opposite side and they need to do more of that sometimes you just generally there's going to be help coming in from the weak side just to make someone make even a mild closeout i I thought they really just ended up on one side a lot we thought rubio would make a difference he he didn't really um in terms of having more ball handling he wasn't able to attack the defense that much it's maybe defensively you might want to see give tabo cephalosha some time on harden use his his length and strength to take away some of those plays but tabo really plays more at the four but that's fine you could match up that way and and put some smaller guys elsewhere houston does have some guys you can hide on a little bit um he be more favors in gobert it did seem to work i can't really tell you exactly why other than hitting some offense board i would be interested and this is something we might see the warriors do more the jazz if that series comes past of trying to bait harden and paul into the corner three when you're not actually going like basically trying to get the pass but then playing the passing lane those sorts of idea that might be interesting it's maybe more of a gimmick something that would work a couple times and then not work for but at least to show a different look yeah those those guys have seen it i I think they did a better job i think the jazz defensive plan was better in in the second half agreed uh but they there really is not the one thing that the jazz don't really do is they don't have a lot of off-ball screening action where you can slip a screen they I, i mean if they got maybe two system buckets in this whole game if that where you just were able to fool the guys and get a backdoor or something that they don't run a lot of off-ball action most of it is on ball with pick and roll and uh, houston was able to shut that down clint capella was fantastic defensively moving his feet in this game um gosh especially when you consider that they've worked on this for an entire year and just weren't able to create good looks it's really just a bummer i i'm generally i'll have some thoughts on what you can do corver being out or, or limited doesn't help much either but he was going to get attacked defensively in the series not having that one guy with a great gravity but but when Corver tried to move without the ball Houston was, was able to stay with him really well and he didn't look as, as fast as he usually does and he's also 38 so he's not that fast to begin with. well and something else I want to mention is there were a series of times where Rubio and Donovan Mitchell made really nice passes it's just that that wasn't enough to generate reliable offense like they weren't yeah getting the they found of- they found the shooter on the weak side and you know it'd be nice if Jay Crowder were a high 33 point shooter he's done that once in his career but he's really more of like a 32 percent guy yeah, and, and that's why he was available for them to get yeah yeah and cephalosha rubio was on the weak side a lot i do think trying to figure out a way to get mitchell some more catch and shoots and play him off the ball running off of screens it would be nice to try and see that and at the very least maybe you get capella out on the floor if you're not going to switch off ball action with capella maybe mitchell can get open for some of those screens for a three especially maybe you try and run something to get hardened switched on to him first and then you can have him run off of screens i was 
saying they should, the Warriors should do this with Clay, where if you can get Harden switched on to Mitchell, you don't even need a screen. You just have Mitchell sprint from one side of the floor to the other, and Harden does not want to run with him, and you could probably just get an open three even that way. Um, but those are very kind of specific things. You can add a few things in. Um, anything else on this one? I got a couple of smaller notes, but that's about it. I think that's about all I have, actually. Uh, so one thing I thought was very interesting that I liked was at the end of the second quarter, Utah's strategy was actually to force Harden to his left, knowing that he would want to run the time down and take a step back and so you force him to take a step back to his left that was the one situation where it makes more sense in theory to send him left so i thought that was a good attention to detail i do expect utah to play better in this series I, i've been impressed with some of the adjustments that quinn snyder has been able to come out with for game twos remember we felt after game one in oklahoma city last year that utah just had no chance to score against oklahoma city but i'm a little less sanguine about their chances of making adjustments because they've been trying to work against this team that beat them for the last year or so and weren't able to really find anything and maybe just the the talent is not there but I, I will say one thing at least even if it's kind of a bummer about this series and maybe Utah can get back in it not for closing on that but uh making a little more excited about the next series potentially yeah Houston and Golden State yeah that'd be that'd be pretty exciting and considering whatever happens in the east we're going to get some really interesting stuff I and mean, having having those three series the bare minimum would be would be awfully exciting but beyond promoting my own my own stuff I have uh my my now my report card pieces are every player whatever you want to use for Warriors games those are going to be hopefully at the athletics full site now for the rest of the year they're in the app as well for people who've been used to that under the scores tab and it's you know a thousand plus words on each game also my offseason preview the Charlotte Hornets is going to come out on Monday hopefully and uh the piece that I wrote on the Warriors best five-man lineup and basically how ridiculous the death lineup has been this year and kind of more on the idea not about this series but about moving forward that Kerr needs to be ready to be proactive with that and that ties in with your idea of looking forward to that series about when they get challenged not having it as a reaction but being proactive with it the, th- the other thing i want to ask you just i mean end of the first week in the playoffs you and i both love this period of time because we're learning a lot what series do you do you feel that your opinion of it or like expected outcome however in that range you want to feel about it changed the most over these two days hey you know D- detroit milwaukee i really thought detroit could could maybe go um <laughs> truthfully houston and utah i feel so much i i picked this to be i picked houston to win but i thought it would be a seven game series i feel so much worse about the jazz chances after this game because they had so much trouble scoring yeah and i just don't see what the solution is. and i hope for their sake that quinn snyder does usually i've got advices uh, i do not have the right advice for this utah team uh what would your pick be that's a good choice but for me partially because of joel Embiid's health and partially because it, it fed into some things that i was a little bit concerned about with the sixers brooklyn and philly i'm not willing to yet to go to the point of predicting that the nets will win now we'll see by the time we record the next by the time we talk on dunk down the next time maybe i'll feel differently but i worry about philly's generation of reliable offense i worry about how they do when Embiid's not on the floor and i'm very concerned about how much time Embiid's going to spend off the floor i mean stamina was a big question in game one and i mean he's listed as i I believe questionable for game two if this is a persistent thing and he can't either he can't play or he can't play as many minutes as we'd hope they don't really have that many alternatives yeah certainly our opinions of many of the series have changed when you consider that yesterday three of the road team won right uh brooklyn and philly it's tough to say because you saw that if it was going to happen for brooklyn this would be the way i think it fell into that formula nearly exactly as we thought it might if it were going to happen orlando and toronto that one i don't think the series has changed that much just to that 14 to 29 three-point shooting as we talked about earlier 
now obviously if game two doesn't go the rapt way i'll be changing my tune quite a bit there uh so i mean you'd have to say brooklyn philly because i think philly is is in the most danger of losing right now of those other teams that lost yesterday but and certainly you know i'm not feeling amazing about denver's chances either with the way they've shot the three over the last couple of months yeah that's at this a very point. good point and just not having home court they haven't been a good road team uh, since basically time immemorial and san antonio has been a very good home team this year right and yeah, many and, previous years and they had previously been one in 11 on the road against the other west playoff teams before that game one uh and i do think that is a coaching mismatch despite what i said about you know, pop not necessarily having authored that many great upsets when people are like oh yeah you got to really watch out for the spurs well maybe this will be his chance to do that as a seven seed and yeah i mean i think boston indiana kind of fell right into what we were thinking of obviously uh clippers golden state even though the clippers played better than i thought they would defensively in that one so yeah i think it's this this houston utah i just i mean if i were going to do the prediction right now i'd put it at 4.5 games after seeing and especially just because it's like utah just couldn't get good shots against these guys and they couldn't get good shots against them last year. all right well this was fun this is one of the best episodes to do we'll be back really late probably tomorrow night after warriors clippers is over we got a ton of news to get to as well the nba layoffs going on right before the nba playoffs i did a little crowdsourcing on that one of what we should call that thursday after the nba season ends they call it black monday in football i thought we better uh brady klopfer thanks for thanks for that one and also got to talk about golden state clippers and we'll know whether philly is going to be in this series or not after tomorrow i fully expect them to win regardless of whether he plays just because it, the research of how well teams that go down 1-0 especially at home do in game two it's just generally that team comes out with fire in their eyes and there's a little bit of complacence with the road team like okay we did what we, we got what we need yeah brooklyn uh, relying on their stellar home court advantage all right we will talk to you tomorrow till then